serves. This is Sir Gene with your morning update in the afternoon. Joining me today is Baron Balance. Although that's not your real last name, right? No, it's it's a Chicago Polish last name. Uh huh. What balance? No, my real last name is Farron Franzak. That's my Franzak. TV name. Yes. Right. But you go by Farron Balance, and you've been doing that for how long? Farron Balance since last. Okay, so we're right now as of this broadcast, February twenty twenty three. I've gone by it since like July twenty twenty two. Oh, so it's fairly new. I'm very okay. new. I yeah. thought you've been using this for a long time because it seems like such an obvious. Sort of to have. I okay. Let me say this: when I had my little like reporter segment where I would call out both the left and the right media, I had like a segment. That's when okay. my segment was born, called Fair and Balanced. But I never went by it. But then that summer, last summer, when I started covering the Johnny Depp trial and all that stuff, I was like kind of a media analyst because I used to cover court cases. That's when I used Fair and Balanced because I was like, hey, why not? You know, kind of don't need to have my name out there on the internet too much. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, no, last name is Franzak, Polish last name. No relation to Paul Franzak, the uh, baby that was that was kidnapped from the hospital in Chicago back in the 60s. Although I get that. That's the one question that I get asked all the time if I'm related to that person. And I'm like, ah. no, I think it's like very, very, very distant cousins. Hmm. So well, I think when I first saw you, you were on RT America. Yep. So we'll get to that, but let's actually start. A little further back. So you grew up in Chicago, right? Chicago, born and raised. West How was Side. that? So I, this is one of the things that's that's funny about Chicago people. So if you have, when you're from Chicago, you, and you meet somebody else, like in the mm. world, and they ask you where you're from, you say, I'm from Chicago. If you're from Chicago, you immediately go, what part? Mm-hmm. Because we know that, most people didn't grow up in the city because I come from that era where my parents actually grew up in the city, the boomers, mm. and they moved out to the suburbs. So that's well, where you didn't I'm... grow up in Miracle Mile. And that's again, we never called it Miracle Mile because it wasn't a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so I grew up on the west side. I'm Chicago Catholic, went to Catholic school all my life until I went to Purdue University. You know, one of six kids, you know, your typical Polish, Italian, Irish, Russian you know, Chicago mutt family. Yeah. And I remember on the West side there, there's some, well, there, there was in the nineties when I used to go to Chicago, there was some really nice Polish restaurants out there. Oh yeah. And that's, that's one of the great finds now that I have, you know, when you're young with your parents or like when you're a kid with your parents, you're like, what is it? Like they're your parent, but as you get older, they're like your friend. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that my dad and I love doing now is we love going and searching for great, authentic Polish restaurants. Like Skadges yeah. is a big one on like kind of the, the Southwest side. I'm trying to remember the other ones. I mean, there was one Warsaw Inn is a huge, mm-hmm. that's my dad's favorite restaurant, Warsaw mm-hmm. Inn. When they found out that they were closed for Easter, my dad almost like keeled over because it's just such great Polish food. Yeah. And it, I think a lot of people don't really know what Polish food is or just how much variety there is that you can get an actual Polish restaurant beyond just kielbasa and sauerkraut and potatoes mm-hmm. and pierogi. But there is definitely a distinction between other Slavic foods and Polish foods. And everyone's got their particular little, you know, 
niche and uniqueness to it. Uh, and Chicago, I think, is one of the American cities, if not the American city, that had the most authentic Polish food that I remember. Oh, 100%. You know, and then a lot, also a really great authentic Ukrainian and Russian food as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole, you know, neighborhood called Ukrainian Village yeah. where, you know, there's, they're all Ukrainian there. I have a, two sorority sisters. They were twins, born and raised in Ukrainian Village. Parents were Ukrainian from Ukraine. They spoke mm -hmm. Ukrainian, you know, and then, then you have the Russians too, like with the Russian tea room, which, you know, my, my father way was way overpriced, way overpriced. Right. <laughs> but well, then there's another one too. I think it's, oh gosh, the name is escaping me, but it's not like the Russian tea room, like the bougie mm -hmm. one. Like it's an actual, like authentic yeah. Russian restaurant. Cause my dad is one side's Russian, one side's Polish. And my mm -hmm. mom was the Italian and Irish one. Yeah. Well, you're right about the mutt. Oh, yeah. But like, <laughs> I will say this. We were more raised on Italian food. Like my uh -huh. dad, you know, my dad being super Eastern European. The first time he had pizza was when he kind of like really met my mom. Now, there's <laughs> there's also the, the the thought, too, that my dad said was when he was 10 years old, he had pizza. Yeah. And then he puked after he had it. Oh, my because he thinks it, and he, he was like he thought he, he was allergic to pizza. So he never oh, had it. God. But yeah, <laughs> it was. Well, it, and. Yeah, the the pizza in Chicago. I'm a big fan of deep dish. I know it's not very popular in general around the world, but I I definitely always enjoyed the deep dish experience. In fact, the last time I was in Chicago was on a 15 hour layover between planes. Yeah. And the first place I went to is to get some pizza. Now I can't remember the name of the place, but if you rattle off some of the deep Oh, say, well, first of all, what airport were you at? Midway or O'Hare? I was at O'Hare. Okay, so you probably, there's Gino's East, there's Pizzeria Uno, there's Lou Malnati's, which is the best pizza. There's only one pizza and it's Lou Malnati's. Connie's Pizza, Giordano's. Giordano's, that's the one. Yeah, that's that's the one that I hate. It's cardboard, cheese on cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what it is? It's, it's just Lou Malnati's, what they do is they mm -hmm. use a cornbread crust. And I never mm -hmm. knew that until like my cousin, who's really, really big into fitness and, and she lived in Corpus Christi now. She's like, I always ask if it's cornbread crust. And I'm like, what do you mean cornbread crust? What, what are you talking about? She's like, that's what Lou Melnati's does. It's a cornbread mm -hmm. crust because she's super, you know, like mm -hmm. health nut. And she's like, yeah, she's like, I don't need you don't need the carbs. The cornbread crust is actually better for you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ah, that's why I love Lou Melnati's so much. <laughs> Interesting. I'll have to check that out next time I'm up there. Oh, Lumel Nadi's. It's 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 so good, so yeah. good. Mm -hmm. But I, I I got pizza and then I bought another one frozen to take with me on my trip. So that was very nice. Good call. But it's it's hard to find good deep dish places. When I lived in Dallas, there was a place that was right near, literally a block away, that did deep dish. But you know, like how often can you really have it? Like, you know, once a month, and then it and takes several days to eat it <laughs> well not even that i mean you really have to like you know like those people that do the hot dog eating contests uh -huh. like you really have to prep for a deep dish pizza because it's like a thanksgiving dinner you know it like is. like these all these new yorkers you know where they're like hey we got the best pizza and it's like yeah you fold it and you're walking down the street as you're mm -hmm. eating it chicago mm -hmm. it's an experience you sit down you have a, you eat it with a fork and a knife for Pete's sake. And it's, 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 you, yeah, you, you literally layers of everything. It's yeah. Great. And then you have a major, major food coma nap afterwards, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. but I do no, love New York pizza though, too. Yeah. Well, pizza in general, I, it's, it's definitely a good tasty thing that you can overdo very easily. Mm-hmm. 
Stepping on the scale definitely demonstrates that, but it's good stuff. All right. Well, enough about food. So you, anyway, you grew up in <laughs> Chicago, you went to school and did you go into journalism? Where'd you go to school? What was your major? I went to Purdue and my major was journalism. You did. So mm-hmm. what made you want to decide to go into journalism? You know, it's so interesting. As a kid, I was always a performer. I mean, I was the kid where, you know, singing the ABCs. I remember there's videos of me as a kid where, you know, my mom had the ABCs, these little stickers on the wall for me to start learning them. And if I, it's just funny because if I started and I messed up a little bit, I was able to kind of just like roll through it and go to the next line because I knew Mm. the tune. And my mom would stop me and be like, no, 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 this is the one. And so there's one where (laughs) I'm doing A, B, C, D, and she starts being like, no, no, no. Like, you know, to remember it, I'm like, A, B, C, D, B, be quiet. Let me do it. <laughs> and that's just one of those videos where my family's like, that's Farron. Like, she's just always kind of been that performer. Mm-hmm. So I always knew from a young age, especially, you know, when I was nine, I was on Broadway with Donny Osmond and Joseph and the Amazing Technical or Dreamcoat, where I was with the kids chorus and we were on stage. I mean, I was leaving fourth and fifth grade every day at noon to go downtown and do a Mm. show. So I learned firsthand kind of, you know, the whole performance life and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. I really thought that I wanted to do that. But then there was a moment where I missed Thanksgiving and Christmas. And as a kid, you know, I have so many cousins, you know, got a big Catholic family and I missed Christmas and I missed Thanksgiving and I didn't see my cousin. And that's like the time when you see your cousins. Because then after that, you really see them the next time at Easter. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, like I really, you know, and that's what my mom told me. She was like, cause my mom was a performer, but she was also was a nurse. And she was like, that's one of the things you got to look at Farron is you're going to miss some stuff for this kind of thing. Mm. So I was like, oh, well maybe, you know, I-, I used to watch Saturday Night Live with my dad every weekend. That was the big thing that him and I used to love watching. But then I would, you know, I'm on my way to school where we were sitting and eating breakfast. I'd be sitting there watching the Today Show or Good Morning America. Mm. And my favorite journalist at the time was Joan London. I mm. thought that she I was, her. I thought she was like just so beautiful. I loved mm-hmm. her hair, you know, because I had really long hair and I thought her short hair was really cool. I liked Katie Couric too when she was young and like kind of, you know, vibrant. But my, my all-time favorite, and I know every girl says this, but I loved Diane Sawyer, but I really loved Barbara Walters too. Yeah. And then another one that I loved was Jane Pauley. But either Baba way Waba. I, yeah, I, I loved yeah, twenty twenty. But I also loved Jane Pauley too. Uh-huh. So, I, but either way, I gravitated towards all the females on TV, and then another but journalism for you was always about TV, not not the written word. The broadcasting, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, what really changed in in looking at the news was when I saw a Weekend Update, and I was like, "Oh, the news can be funny." Mm-hmm. So my initial and who was doing it when you first saw it, or did you recall the very first one I remember seeing was Norm Macdonald. Okay, well, he was, I think. Pretty much the best. <laughs> right. Yeah. Him. I remember him. Colin Quinn. I did love the Jimmy Fallon, Nance, uh, Tina Fey era. And then even the Tina Fey, Amy Poehler era. Mm-hmm. But but again, it was it was a lot of the women, though, that really stood out to me. But so long story short, I thought I wanted to be the Weekend Update anchor on SNL. Mm. And, and, I, and I saw that when I first saw Tina Fey come on. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to remember the lady who was in Coneheads, too. I can't remember her name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was one of them, too, because I remember, yeah. I will never forget seeing it. They did an SNL 
best of Christmas. I was at my aunt's house. We were all in the basement and we were watching the best of. And my dad and I were the only people at the party sitting there watching the best of. And it was my favorite one. One of my favorite, you know, they, where they had their like little correspondent where it was John Belushi. And mm-hmm. he, he talks about St. Patrick's Day. And yeah, he's Jane like, Curtin. Jean Kurt, okay. But yeah, she 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 tosses over to him and he's like, Yeah, you know, St. Patrick's Day, and oh, they love their mothers. And he's like, you know, starting his whole bit. And I just remember seeing her react, and I was like, Oh my God, that must have been so fun sitting next to him. You know? So yeah, so that's what I thought I wanted to do. But then as I got more into watching the news, I mean, I just became obsessed with the news. I loved watching the news. Graduated journalism school, started doing, I was at I was dancing for the Chicago Bulls at the time because I was a professional dancer my entire life. And uh, so when you say dancing, you mean you were like a cheerleader? I was a dancer. So what? explain the difference to. Well, if you've seen the movie, bring it on. The guy says cheerleaders are dancers who have got retarded. Oh, nice. You have to have major skill. Mm-hmm. I remember I auditioned against 5,000 girls. Wow. And only 25 make the squad. But by the end of the day, there's only about 300 girls that make it onto a training camp mm-hmm. because those 40, what is it, 40, 4,700 other girls that thought that they could make the dance team realized mm-hmm. that it's more than just dancing in a club. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you got to be able to do you know, advanced turns, leaps, jumps, you know, you got to have your timing, you got to do this in heels, you got to do it in gym shoes. I mean, it's, it's intense. And it's, it's for actual people that have been dancing practically all their lives. Mm -hmm. So, but so I was doing that. And then I was taking classes at Second City. And I was was doing improv there. And I learned very quick the life of a comedian. Mm -hmm. And I saw that, you know, you're waiting tables during the day. You're going in, trying to do as many, you know, open mic, mic nights as you can. Met some great com- comedic friends and, and still to this day remain friends with them. But I realized that the news pays steady. <laughs> and also, I realized that you can't have fun in the news. You know, mm. and it was my mother that actually told me, she's like, Farron, you remember watching all the morning reports on the Today Show where the puppies would come on or... They'd go and they would, you know, be with the, the Blue Angels or they'd go do the fun stuff in the morning. She's like, that's what you should do. So that's what I, how I started. I got my first job in Rockford, Illinois, 90 miles west of Chicago. And I found out after I moved there, it was the ninth most dangerous city in the country at that time <laughs> in 2011. And I, I always say my mom has every single gray hair on her head because of me during that time, because I was going from shooting to homicide to burglary to you know, I just you can't even imagine the amount that I was covering. But the difference was, is when I graduated, they told me that I was going to have, you know, they said, you know, you're going into TV and, you know, I had internships and all that other stuff. They're like, you're going to have a camera guy and you're going to have a guy running the live truck. Like, it's going to be fine. And, you know, I get there and they're like, OK, so here's your camera and here's this and this is how you're going to operate it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hang on. I, I don't get a camera guy. And they're like, no, you're going to shoot all this yourself. And so I learned and I became like the guru of because when you were shooting by yourself, a lot of reporters at that time didn't do what's called like a stand up Mm -hmm. where you're in front of the camera unless they had a camera guy. 
Well, I was able to rig it where I figured out how to do a stand up where I would able to be flip the camera. I was like, you know how you see the beauty gurus where they they focus their their makeup product and put their hand behind it. I was able to figure out how to focus myself and started doing live shots by myself. But here I'd be out at two in the morning at this homicide and uh, for breaking news. And my mother was like, nobody's with you. What's going on? You know, but yeah. And I, I learned to like the excitement and the adrenaline of it all. And that's where I learned too. I can, there's like kind of like no really gray area for me. I either love like the super, super fun stuff or the super, super serious stuff, you know. But and then went on to a bunch of cities after that. I was at South Bend, Indiana. I was in El Paso, Texas, Austin, Texas, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then Washington. And just every place that I went, I happened to kind of meet somebody that was a young buck at the time and then made it big, like Pete Buttigieg in South Bend, Indiana, and mm-hmm. Beto O'Rourke in El Paso, and then Justin Amash in Grand Rapids, and then, you know, DC. And then I'm like, oh, all my friends are following me here, you know? Or, and then, and what the, what's the, the weirdest part is when your friends start running for president. That's the weirdest thing. Mm-hmm. So wait a minute. You're, you're saying Pete Budges is a friend of yours? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I used to cover him all the time in South Bend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is like when you're in these smaller towns, you get to know these people for, you know, who they are and you're hanging out with them, you know, especially at Notre Dame games and stuff like that. It, yeah. You, you see these people all the time. Right. So. How qualified do you think he was for his current post? Zero. Okay. Absolutely. So we're zero. on the same page there. Yeah. Good. I mean, he, the one thing that's interesting is that, you know, people to judge, and this is, this is proven. So this isn't like, you know, me speculating at all because he did reports on it. And, you know, there, there were times, you know, he used to, whenever we'd be out, you know, and he would see me and he'd be like, Farron, you're a damn good anchor, but God damn, leave me alone. You know, and I just used to be like, <laughs> I used to be like, hey, we're not talking about work here, you know, but I mean, he, he understood, you know, he's got a great heart. I will say that a really kind, sweet, spirited guy. But uh, but no, I mean, he's acts like he turned South Bend around and it's, you know, South Bend is, you know, so wonderful. And it was like, no, dude, like you sold and like gentrified the rough and tough areas of Notre Dame or of, of South Bend and sold it to Notre Dame. And now those are all, you know, brand new high rises and Mm -hmm. new like off campus, you know, apartment housing. Like you didn't help anybody. (laughs) You just you just sold more to Notre Dame. But South Bend, I will say this is an amazing town. I mean, if you could ask me the two towns that I loved living in, it was South Bend, Indiana and El Paso, Texas. Loved it. Mm. How long were you in El Paso? I was there for two years. Okay. And, yeah, uh, my only exposure to El Paso has been while staying there on a drive out west a few times. So I really haven't, like, I don't even know if, if I've seen downtown El Paso for that matter. You know, and it's so interesting because a lot of people tell me, they're like, there's only one reason why you loved El Paso, Farron. And I was like, why? And they're like, because you had never been to Phoenix yet. They call it the poor man's Phoenix. But mm. I, I had just loved, and that was the one thing that I did love about journalism, too, is that you... You can kind of go anywhere. Now, granted, you know, hopefully there's an opening, but a lot of people don't understand how we're kind of nomadic and we got to move around here and there all the time. You know, D.C. is the one job that I've had where I've actually been here the longest now out of any job that I've had. South Mm. Bend was the longest before that with four years. D.C., I've been here since 2019, so almost going on five. But how do you like D.C. as not in terms of reporting? 
but as a place to live? You know, it's interesting. If short answer, it sucks. You know, TLDR, it sucks. But I will say this. You do meet some amazing people here. You do see how the sausage is made in ways that, you know, are unfathomable in some cases. Mm-hmm. And my parents even said, you know, they were always like, you were the kind of kid that always wanted to report what you heard or what you saw. Like you saw it first. And that's like my dad always says, like, yeah, like I knew you were going to be a, a news reporter because you always had to tell me first. You know, he's <laughs> like, he's like, you know, you'd run inside if something happened with your brothers and sisters and you'd have to come up and be the first one to tell me. So there is that knack where, you know, I love telling people how D.C. operates. Now, granted, I haven't gone on the outskirts to like the more Virginia area, like the the northern area of Virginia, where people mm-hmm. say it's much more calm and people are more real there. But, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about this place is that, you know, when there's a recession everywhere else in the country, you don't see it here because everybody works in the government. Everybody's still going to get paid. Right. Yeah. Uh, you don't see any. How about when the government shuts down? That. <laughs> And that's why they work really quick to make sure that it doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, but but even with the government shuts down, it's not like they're not going to really be getting paid. It's just they're Mm -hmm. not going to go to work. Right. You know, but they're still going to get their salary. You know, they're paid through that year. It's just and that's another thing that you don't know either. You know, like there's just it's just it's just so strange the way things operate. You know, like another thing that a lot of people don't know is, you know, we're always thinking Oh, the next four years, the next four years here in D.C., they don't they don't care about the next four years. They're Mm -hmm. looking at the next eight to 12. Because they're slowly I mean, they're always looking for like that next new horse that they're going to bet on. You know, Roger Stone was betting on Trump in the 90s. You know, like and and if that doesn't tell you anything that that's when it started, you know, and that was, you know, over 20 years ago, well over 20 years ago. But, you know, here you you can see where they're always starting to groom people. And that was one thing that I did see that not a lot of people did see with Beto O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg was Pete Buttigieg, when I saw him and met him for the first time and the way that he acted as a mayor. And then I went through and I looked at his resume and stuff. That was one thing that an ex-boyfriend told me that this and this is some of the best advice I've ever gotten. Was he was like, always look at what people's resume and like where they went to school and all that stuff. He's like, because you'll always either be able to find a connection or you're or you'll start to see a pattern. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, what? you know, and he, he was a big business guy, you know, and I look and I see, you know, he went to Oxford. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a, he's in the Navy, a Navy Reserves. And I'm sitting there and, you know, I've studied the presidents because I'm a nerd. And I'm like. This sounds like. A gay JFK. (laughs) And I call, I said to my newsroom, I was like, you guys, he's going to run for president one day. Like, Theron, he's a mayor. He's not going to. And I was like, no, you guys, this guy is, as they say, this guy's fixing to run for president. And then when I went to Beto O'Rourke's resume with him and you see who he's married to and how his father was a judge and Mm -hmm all this other stuff of how he was able to get into Congress and how he was the Democrat, but was able to work across the aisle, like your Joe Biden style, you know, came from humble beginnings, but then the father was a judge, you know, you're like, Oh, 
this is the new young like JFK, you know, like father's a judge, father's very powerful, same kind of thing, but just different, like the different parts of the story, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can see these people shaping as, as they start. And that was, that's been the funnest thing to, for me to, to watch is how these people slowly morph into what Washington needs. And that's how Washington operates. Or look at these people like Tim Scott. I, I was looking at him two years ago. And already they're now talking about a possible VP v, to be on the ticket for VP. And it's Nikki Haley that's looking at him. You know, like it's these people, they, they groom them years and years out. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, you pretty much have to. These right. But I mean, it's also, you know, you also then see in the media cycle, too, like all of a sudden you're, you, you're here. Gavin Newsom over and over and over again. And then he's going to kind of go away, but then he might come back. I just, all these people, you're just like, it's, I understand what people say. Everything's fixed. You know, I really do get it. But, but again, you can also see how these people morph and they turn into Washington. Mm -hmm. And then you're just like, not you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had hope, but not you. So. Yeah. It's interesting. So as, <clears throat> is DC going to be, the the place you think you're gonna be a long time you know right now for the way that it's going yes it's you know even my dad because i was like there was one time i remember calling him and i was like dad i can't stand dc I hate this and he's like god damn it farron he's like you know you love dc he's like you're just just right now you just don't like it because you know you're in a lull or something and i remember you know, then I moved back home for like a quick summer because, you know, it was when RT America shut down and I was like, OK, I don't know where I want to go next. Because I have always loved the South. I did love living in Texas. Mm -hmm. And then I got the job back in D.C. and I was driving in and I listened to I, I always do this whenever I drive into D.C. I listen to the House of Cards theme song. And oh, okay. I just and I and I drove in at night, just like this is the first time when I drove in here and I moved here. And when you see like the, the monument and the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial and the Capitol, I just I just started crying again. This the this the same the same way that I did the first time when I drove in because you're just like, God, this is such a magical place. Then this then it sets in where you're like, I hate everybody, but then you know you got to get out a little bit and you know and then remember how magical it is because it it truly is a magical place, and what happens here. <clears throat> but we'll see yeah. we'll see yeah i mean i i can kind of see that although i wouldn't call it magical but I, it is definitely I unique your, yeah. in the country it's 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 the only place in the country that has that many bureaucrats on one place yeah it really is and that's that's one thing that you've heard a lot of republicans talk about how they would want to be able to move things around the country and yeah i understand uh, that idea but that would have been that would be way too difficult, and we would be wasting way too much tax money. Oh, I uh, think that's the least of our worries. <laughs> that's that's this is true. Yes, after the last oh I don't know hundred years of this country, that's that's really not a concern. Oh, uh, for sure. The yeah the the interesting plan that I heard, which I don't think ever got very far, was in relocating the capital to the center of the country. For multiple reasons, which would kind of place it in in St. Louis. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, they were talking like St. Louis or Springfield mm -hmm. or like somewhere, either way, in Missouri. Yep. yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it could work. Again, it would, it would save, you know, flight times for a lot of these folks. But the other thing, too, is, is you know, folks, a lot of these people, they move their entire families up here and yeah. they're, they're gone. <laughs> like when they win, they're gone. <laughs> you know, you don't oh, really yeah. see a lot of the people that sit back home, you know, like I do know Beto work his his wife and kid, they stayed in El Paso and they, they, cause they wanted them to go to the same school mm -hmm. and stay there. But most of that, which actually was surprising to me because most of the time they move up here and they send their kids to like, yeah, private you schools. know, yeah, the, you mm -hmm. know, St. Andrews here where Trump's son went. Yeah. There's some of the, if not the best schools in the country. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I think, it's an interesting city because it's, it's also, given how young America is, it's one of the cities that has tried to emulate sort of European architecture. Oh, yeah. And, and that doesn't really happen in most cities. You know, Boston's got a little bit of that, but New York, they've totally not. <laughs> Philadelphia's got a little bit. But in D.C., I think it was done by design because it, it really was a city, kind of like St. Petersburg, Russia, which was built on a swamp mm -hmm. and so when you design a city from scratch you get to make a lot of choices that organically grown cities don't oh uh, yeah which you also i i curse the name of the guy whose name i forgot the guy the guy who designed the the road systems in dc every time i go there because they are just that i like grids i like easy to understand road systems and that road system is the opposite of that. It was a French dude. I can't remember. Is you know what Andrew, I'm talking about? It was a surveyor named Andrew Ellicott. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, wait but a minute. It, oh, L'Enfant. 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 That's right. L'Enfant. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which there is uh, a, a metro stop, L'Enfant Plaza. Now, okay. Now, I didn't even know that, so I learned something new. Yeah. Yeah, it's not how I would have designed it, but, you know, he got the job, not me. Oh, well. Well, and that was one of the things I, I will tell you this. It, Chicago, it's Chicago is also a grid system. So I grew up knowing that. Mm -hmm. And we always remembered, you know, state and state and Madison were kind of like the was where everything was north, south, east, west. Mm -hmm. But here in D.C., they have like this number system and letter system. So it's, you know. Yeah. First street, second street, third street, and then A, B, C, D, G. So, like, you know, my first job was, you know, on G Street Northwest. Mm -hmm. But then you'll have G Street Southwest. Yeah. And it's like, there is no north and south. Like, I just, you know, it was like, you know, south uh -huh. South State Street or North State Street. No, I got to I gotta learn four quadrants now. Yeah. And mind you, the capital is the center of it. So... And, and, and to me, I remember it was, I was on a date with this guy and I remember I was like, OK, wait a minute. So how do I get back? Because I had like kind of just moved here. And he's like, you know, it's pretty easy to get. You know, you just go four up that way and then another four and then over two. And I was like, no, see, actually, it's not easy for me because I look at this city and I'm like, why did you do it like this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, you could have just you know kept it north blame. and south. Yeah. Now I know. Now I know. Yeah. It's 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 retarded is what it is. <laughs> and I've been in D.C. I've never lived there, but I've been there a lot over the years for a variety of reasons. And I think every 
about half the time I've been there, that seemed to be a snowstorm, a once in a lifetime snowstorm hitting. Oh, wow. Which always they're never prepared for. But I don't know. It's it, like I love some aspects of DC, but other things are just completely anathema. Oh, yeah. I mean, I will say the one first thing that I had here, I had never been through a hurricane before. Mm. And I believe it was 2019 or 2020. Yeah, summer of 2020. And my brother and sister were visiting me. And I just remember it was just raining and raining and raining and raining. And I was like, hurricanes don't seem that bad. See, I'm from the Midwest. So, so we're used to tornado warnings. You know, like, I was like, God, oh, this hurricane's kind of nice. Nobody goes anywhere. Mm-hmm. You all kind of hunker down. This is like a Chicago snowstorm, <laughs> you know? But yeah, I'd never been through a hurricane before. And yeah, I, I apparently sometimes DC gets it. But snowstorm, I have not been through that here yet. Really interesting. Yeah, it's, I've been through three of them out there. <laughs> wow yeah it 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 seems i mean definitely gets colder there than it does in texas here so when there's snow in texas people are they're they're afraid to even look outside the house because god forbid they might slip fall and break their neck by looking <laughs> i know growing up in a you know in minnesota that obviously is not a big deal like i i learned how to drive on snow when i was five years old like everybody in minnesota but it it's a in DC it's like in that in between region where it's by the water so it always kind of stays warmer than other cities that are at the same. But occasionally it, it will get cold enough to get a snowstorm going through there. So you know it's it's always so funny to me when I would when I lived down in Texas when I was in Austin there was an ice storm or like they were you know saying like an ice. Mm-hmm which I had never heard of an ice storm before. It was just, yep. you know, snowstorm, but it's an ice storm. And I remember one of my friends, I was like, what the hell is that? And then, mind you, my friend was from Michigan, mm-hmm. my best friend that lives down there. And she's like, oh, yeah. She goes, these folks and their ice storms. And I was like, what, is that? what does that even mean? She goes, well, apparently the snow doesn't stay, since it's warmer, the snow doesn't, you know, stay snow and it turns to ice. She goes, but it actually does get really slippery around here. And I saw, you know, where they don't drive, they don't, literally Austin shut down. Completely. Yep. But there was a snowstorm though there too. And the, oh, yeah. the, the city still shut down. And I was like, with my girlfriend, you know, again, from Michigan, I'm from Chicago. She's from like the Detroit area. And I was like, these, these little whippersnappers, like, oh, it's an, it's like really is it three feet you can still do it you know like give me a break you know my grandpa or my my parents survived the what was it snowstorm of 70 79 or something like that mm-hmm. i can't remember what it was my mom said that the snow literally went up to their garage door oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah i remember a few of those i mean the top uh, of the garage door meaning that the top of the right, garage right. door. yeah where the all the basement windows and all and the garage door were just snowed over completely mm-hmm. and it's it's a combination of you know lots of snow but also wind which in chicago is there most of the year mm-hmm. uh, yep. some, sometimes that's not a bad thing in the middle of summer have that wind coming off the lake but oh yeah uh, other times not so much you know what i really loved about being in chicago just to jump back for a second is at night probably around like about the time you're coming back from the bars and where I stayed and it was, you know, like two blocks from the House of Blues off Wacker Drive, there was this great smell of chocolate from oh, the yeah. From, yeah. And no other city has that. 
Like yep. that to me will always be a Chicago memory. I actually used to live, I lived on Lake and Canal and it's mm-hmm. literally across this, almost like directly across the like area of where that chocolate factory is. And I mm-hmm. used, you talk about smelling that, try smelling it every single day around like 3.30, 4 p.m. in your apartment where you're just <laughs> like, oh my God, that smells amazing. And that, that's one of the things though, I will say that I do love about Chicago in the sense that, you know, moving here to D.C., DC's like child's play. You want when it comes to corruption. Like I, I felt like I came here and I'm like, this is your corruption, but it's just kind of on a larger scale. Chicago, one of the if not the most corrupt city in yeah. the country. And I, you know, people and I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are like, fair, and you're able to see all these different politicians and you're able to call this stuff out like how they do on House of Cards. And I'm like, I'm from Chicago. Like I've seen this since I was a kid. You know, because a lot of it really does this. It's like the stories are the same, but they're different characters, you know, but a lot of the characters kind of run the same type of way as, you know, many of the ones do here as they do here in D.C. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Chicago definitely groomed me and, and, I, and I'm very lucky and grateful for that. But yeah, Chicago was uh, it was fun growing up watching it with all the aldermen and the dailies and watching all that stuff happen and all the corruption you know yeah my parents they have a condo downtown and there was a whole airstrip where you know you could and i remember the airstrip seeing it as a kid because we used to watch the planes go in and fly on this airstrip right off of like you know the lakeshore drive mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they dailies got mad and overnight crews are in there digging up the whole airstrip you know totally messing everything up you know the whole thing that happened with navy pier at the at, at the end and how there was all this corruption going on with who was going to get the contracts and you're just like Oh, yeah, it's the same stuff that was in The Sopranos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, this is, so, so this is how it works. You know, mm-hmm. that's how the world works, <laughs> you know. But now it's yeah, just a larger yeah. scale. I, I remember driving to Chicago in a, a black Cadillac in the mid-90s. And, I mean, it was definitely a very mobby city even then. And it was, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, interesting characters that always seem to emerge when places have corruption and chicago was very much a a character city oh you want you want to hear a great story so the the suburb that i grew up in west of chicago it's about 20 minutes outside of the city with no traffic it's where all of the sports players lived because it's a little town called oakbrook illinois and it's actually where the first world headquarters for mcdonald's were hamburger university and all my friends parents growing up like they all were you know heads of something at at mcdonald's like my friend's dad was the guy who headed the photo shoots for Mm -hmm. the food and that's where i first learned about how you know in the commercials the cheese is actually you know rubber and you know yeah and how all of that stuff works you know (laughs) it's it's it's, you know the, the friend's my friends and their parents, it, it was inter- it's an interesting area. But either way, the, the sports guys moved there because we have the famous Oak Brook Mall there. And they get kind of a people at Oak Brook, I guess, like their, their property taxes. It's something to do with the mall helps cover it or it's something to do with property taxes or low. Either way. Mm-hmm. So you had like guys like Frank Thomas, Chris Chelios, Stan Makita, who just passed away, RIP, big Blackhawks guy, you know, Dennis Savard. These are all, I'm naming all Blackhawk hockey players and White Sox players. These people are probably like, I don't know. But, and then you had the mob. So 
a lot of my friends in school, their their parents, or their namely their fathers, were involved in the mob in some way. It's a very, very Italian Irish neighborhood, and there's a guy. Oprah, Oprah is different. They don't have like a little downtown area. It's like a bunch of different subdivisions because it used to be a big polo area too. Prince Charles actually used to go there and, and play polo at, at the oh, Oprah, wow. at the Oprah Polo Grounds. Yeah. And so you also have Butler National Golf Course where the Western Open used to be. But then when Michael Jordan got in it, they had to move it because Butler National doesn't allow black people or women, mm. which I don't know if they do today. I haven't been home in a while. But uh, yeah, that was the one thing where every, it was the big, you know, what happened with Oak Brook? But so it was one of the subdivisions and it was a big mob boss and it was late at night and he was it was a gated community or no, I'm sorry, it was it was a little subdivision driving in at night and he had like a long driveway and he had his mailbox at the end and he goes to grab his mail you know it's night dark out and some guy went behind his mail came from out behind his mailbox it was like a big brick mailbox you know mm -hmm. yeah. where he could hide and shot him in the face and ran off and this is like in the, like the 70s 80s and in oak brook illinois of all places and mm -hmm. a guy drives to the hospital still alive ends up living all of a sudden pays a bunch of money to the association gets the community gated and has and you can still see him like we as kids used to go through and see like if we could see the the cameras he had a camera at his mailbox and then lights going all the way down his driveway with cameras in each freaking lamp oh wow oh yeah i mean and you're just like holy cow you know like as a kid yeah it's a big big mob area but the Chicago mob is kind of died out a little bit because I think the, the kids don't have enough time now, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, between all their gig working and whatever. You know, I think <laughs> I think I think I think the big thing that they're all in now is like logistics or something, you know, or like how logistics is like a big thing that you're seeing with a lot of mobsters now. But I don't know. I haven't been home in a while. But but yeah, grew up with a lot of mobster kids. It was fun. I learned loyalty. You know, I learned loyalty very well. That's why I have such a problem when people aren't loyal. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the Italian mobs, the, the Jewish mob, they tended to be more, more into providing illicit services and controlling gambling and not so much into drugs and sort of the hardcore stuff. And that's where the, I think the Mexican cartels really kind of picked up a lot of the Oh, yeah. Um, growth that they've experienced is well, because they were from day one willing to do all those things. Well, not to mention, too, I mean, you really saw kind of your rise of the mob in the beginning with the Irish and the Italians. If you've ever watched like Boardwalk Empire, you see this mm -hmm. where it was all during the bootlegging area, the yep. bootlegging era. In fact, that was one of the coolest things that I loved about working in South Bend. A lot of people didn't know that, you know, you had like your New York mob gangs and your New York cronies or like mm -hmm. not the cronies, like the the. You know, like the big mobster names, like you're, to me, I know. Dinos. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Chicago, everybody knows Al Capone, but there's the biggest, the biggest one that, that created basically the FBI was John Dillinger. Mm -hmm. And the last, I did a really cool, it was for a sweeps piece. The last bank that John Dillinger ever robbed was in South Bend, Indiana, where he actually shot and killed two officers. Mm-hmm. But he spent time at the Michigan City Prison, which is just outside of Chicago. If you've seen Public Enemies, 
with Johnny Depp in the very beginning scene, he's walking out of the actual Michigan City prison. And I actually have a stand up there and everything. I mean, it was such a cool story to to learn about him and his life. But all I, I then in South Bend did a ghost hunt. I used to love doing that kind of weird crap. And it was a ghost hunting investigation. And it was at this giant, it looked like a giant, you know, barn, but it was an actual like kind of a home, but it was an antique store. And the basement was haunted. Mm-hmm. And it was an actual underground railroad stop for the bootleggers. Not like, not what, with the slaves. It was, it was for the, the, the whiskey or like the, the moonshine stuff. Yeah. 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 And didn't find anything with that. You know, it was kind of like, okay, whatever. But when I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I did another ghost hunt. And it was the tavern where Al Capone used to hang out. And that's where I actually did feel like I, I, I went in as a skeptic and I'm now a believer. But it was it was another spot, another bootlegging spot where Al Capone and them would hang out. And it was, you just see like all along that Chicago, Indiana, Michigan area. That's where all these guys would go back and forth and they were able to cut corners and cross state lines super quickly, which is why then they ended up having to create the FBI. So they could, you know, not have to rely on state to state. They could actually, you know, make it federal. Yeah, yeah there, there's a St. Paul was also a big destination city for them because St. Paul had a, I don't want to call it an amnesty necessarily, but they were during the prohibition, they were not prosecuting a lot of the mobsters so a lot of them ended up going out there yeah there was a a nightclub in the 1930s during the prohibition that was an a literal underground nightclub it was in the caves on the side of the mississippi river that were dug out and those caves it's fairly large man-made cave that i think originally started as you know native american caves but then got expanded during the late 1800s early 1900s to be a were used as ammunition storage facilities they were used as cheese storage (laughs) they were used for a number of reasons a number of different things but during the prohibition age the the cave was owned by i can't remember which of the gangsters i think it was the bar the barker gang in west st paul and they were set up as a speakeasy kind of nightclub. And I used to hang out at the caves all the time back in the 90s because the current owners recreated the original speakeasy nightclub that the caves had back there. And so there was a bar, there was a stage, there was a big dance floor. And you're literally inside of a cave, like eight stories underground. But you've got this whole facility there. So there, there's a lot of interesting sort of mob ties in the Midwest that a lot of people don't realize existed. People have heard of New York. A lot of people have heard of Chicago. But but also St. Paul, Kansas City had very active mob scenes. And a lot of these guys were frenemies. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, they, they competed with each other as the different factions of mobs usually do. But they were also friendly with each other because they're in the same business. They have the same goals and they're working against really, you know, the, uh, the law. Right. Uh, and and so, the other one, too, is I remember hearing about was Wisconsin, because I think that's where mm-hmm. like Babyface Nelson, I think, was shot. But 
the part that you you learn in Boardwalk Empire, and like I said, you know, Boardwalk loosely based, but mm-hmm. you do see that part. And I think it's like season three or four where, you know, you know, Steve Buscemi, the main guy out of Atlantic City, you know, where they're getting all of this stuff. Yep. You know, the guy who plays Al Capone, he's like, yeah, he's like, we don't we don't need you anymore. We're, we're going to get it in from Canada now. Yeah. And you see where he just pissed because, you know, he was kind of the line guy where it would go from him to New York, Chicago, everywhere. And you learn that, yeah, like once Canada started coming into play, that that's when the New York and the Chicago mobs completely kind of like split. Yep. But I love I love that stuff. And then then there was like a, there's a whole Southern mob that I was learning about. With this, I love Discovery Plus. I just love I'm a huge <laughs> documentary nerd. I will literally. You tell me a documentary, I will watch it like in the next hour that, you know, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, watch this one. And I'm like, all right, I'm on the list. But it's called Rebel Gold. Where? I've seen that. Oh, it's so interesting. So allegedly, journalist's favorite word. Allegedly, when, oh God, what's his name? The He was the president of the Confederacy. God, what was his name? His name is escaping oh. me. Yeah, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for not remembering instantly off the top of my head. Oh, no. Well, I'm, I'm a Yankee. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I will I will never forget hearing the first time when I moved down south. Somebody was like, well, yeah, you're a Yankee. And I was like. Jefferson no. Davis. Yes. Yeah. But they go, you're, you're a Yankee. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I'm a White Sox fan. And they're like, no, you're a Yankee. Like meaning you're a northerner. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Whatever that means. But uh, I mean, he ain't one of us is what it means. Ex- exactly. That's I learned that real quick. Just it's just it's so funny. Like even like when I moved here to D.C., I went down to Fredericksburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Which is literally 45 minutes outside of D.C. Mm-hmm. And you leave D.C., you start driving, you hit south and there's just this giant Confederate flag waving on this giant flagpole. And you're like, oh, OK. But as like a as a person that grew up in, you know, the north, you're just like, yeah. oh, these people, those people are real. OK, you know, like it's just you don't see it, you know, because especially like in Austin, like I didn't see it. El Paso, mm-hmm. I didn't see it. Grand Rapids, I definitely didn't see it. You know, like just all these other places. Surprisingly, I didn't see it in South Bend, which is not far from the original birthplace of the KKK. Yeah. But uh, you no. Know, so back to my point with Rebel Gold. So Jefferson. Well, and, and- what oh, you're ahead. referring to as the Confederate flag is actually the Virginia Confederate Navy flag. Really? So it's, it is a Virginia national flag. Okay. From well, that era. Well, then I went and covered a protest in Richmond, Virginia, where it was all mm-hmm. over 2A and it was going against Governor Ralph Northam. And the people that I had never met in my life that, you know, some of them believe the South will rise again. I was like, hell yeah. You're just like, oh, wow. okay, they they are real. You know, and then I've met some people from Tennessee. One of my old co-hosts, our co-anchors was from Tennessee. And, you know, her son was talking about all the different things that happened during the Confederate War. And um, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, the War of Northern Aggression. And I was like, exactly what it was. Yeah, I was like, excuse me. (laughs) I I even had a friend, a friend from Miami who was a Democrat. She's like, yeah, the War of Northern Aggression. And I'm like, wait, what was Mm -hmm. that? She's like, in the 1800s, I'm like, wait, was there a war that I didn't No, But I'm, I'm like, the 1800s, I'm like, is there a war that I didn't know about? Did I miss this yeah. in school? And she's like, yeah, like where the North fought the South. And I'm like, oh, you mean the Civil War? <laughs> You're just like, mm-hmm. 
Oh, the war of northern aggression. Okay. Yeah, well, this is a good time to plug my other podcast. Go Just for it. Good old boys. <laughs> where people like Farron can learn all about the South rising again and the war of northern aggression. That's actually, well, so you'll love this rebel gold then. So, because uh, I, I love history. I love, mm. a, and I, I love a good history story, you know? So I guess it's this group of guys that basically are like treasure hunters. And apparently, or allegedly when Jefferson Davis fled at Richmond, which was the capital of the Confederacy at the time, mm -hmm. they went down this one railroad track and then they stopped at certain parts in like South Carolina and Georgia to, to get him over to Texas. But mm -hmm. as he stopped, he learned that there was Union armies the Union Army, I guess, troops after him because they had the South had just surrendered and they knew that he was on a train with like a bunch of like gold bars and like mm -hmm. all this, all these gold coins and everything. And along the way, he stopped and he hid like a lot of the money and stuff. And so there is like a whole thing in Southern Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, that whole train route where people legit are looking for where he might have, you know, allegedly stopped and, and discarded some of the, the gold that they had. And mm -hmm. that's where I learned they went to this one plantation where they had, I don't know if it's like an ice house or what, but it's a place underground where they would build it, you know, and they would put a bunch of ice in there with all of like their meats and stuff. And it was to, they would take like the, the snow basically from the winter and try to keep it as cold as they could for so that during the summer it would keep stuff preserved. I mean, it was just learning all of this stuff. You're just like, oh, people didn't do that in Chicago because it was like cold a lot of the time, you know, <laughs> but they they do find like coins and stuff like that. And you realize like all these stories from the southern era, the southern side of, of the war mm -hmm. are just super, super interesting because, again, being from Chicago, you know. All we heard was about the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman, right, right, all right. of that. Because even in Oak Brook, Illinois, it's called Graw Mill. It was a spot on the stop on the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. And so that's those are the stories that we heard. Not yeah. the, how Jefferson Davis like hit his treasure along a railroad <laughs> in the South, you know? Yeah. So it's but it's, it's it's an interesting series and you learn a lot about the war and what happened and where he was taken in and by the Union soldiers and whatnot. So it's it's I, I love learning that stuff. Well, and I, I would totally agree with you. I think growing up in Minnesota, then I had, I'm sure, a very similar history presented to me at school that, that you did about the war. But moving to the south and spending more time here and really like becoming friends with people whose relatives have been here for many generations and they have tons of stories, family stories about the war in Northern aggression and sort of the, the carpetbaggers coming down after the war and really how the South was fucked big time as a result of that. And is a very different perspective than what is sort of standard accepted school history, which at this point, I have to imagine, given everything else going on in, in the way that schools are teaching history, it's probably not even anywhere near what we were taught in school. At this point, it's probably a lot more fiction than actual history that 
describes, you know, a, a bunch of Trump lookalikes deciding to go and kill all black people. And then Abraham Lincoln saying, no, you're not going to kill these people. And then he goes and defends everybody personally. I mean, that's what I envision history looks like in today's generations. Well, I even, I even remember thinking about it when I first learned of like, you know, and everybody loves a good conspiracy. But one of the things that I, I really love studying are basically the best way to call it a coordinated United States coup. Mm -hmm. Since the 1960s, the United States has been involved in over 62 different coups around the world to yep. either take over a country, overthrow a country and put in a dictator that we like or a leader that we like. And a lot of Americans don't know. That. When I first got to RT America, and mind you, I love my country. I have grandfathers that fought for this country, mm -hmm. distant relatives that fought and died for this country. My my father's uncle was one of the first guys killed at uh, Omaha Beach. You know, I love everything about this country. I love the freedoms we used to have, you know, everything. <laughs> everything yeah, that's that a good way have. of putting it. That's a very good way of putting it. I, I, I have to give it homage to him. Yeah. Jimmy Dora is he's the one that he says that he's like, I love this country. Yeah. I love the freedoms we used hilarious. to have. Oh, yeah. He is really a funny guy. That's one of uh, my favorite lines that he says. Yeah. But when I found out about Gulf of Tonkin mm -hmm. for the first time and hearing and and I remember I, I was home one weekend and I went and, and, you know, as a kid, you know, my mom, like you would, there's this, we have a little third floor area and it's, it was like our study area. And we still have like the bookshelf with all of our books, our history books and stuff, because, you mm -hmm. know, a lot of them were hand-me-downs <laughs> from, you know, being all at the same school. And I remember looking and I was like, I'm just going to go into my history book and see if there's anything about this. Not anything about it was fake the united states lied mm -hmm. about it nothing still there a history book from 2001 all about how the the, the damn Viet Cong, you know yep. and that was when i realized i was like wow and then so i, I got back to my point i get to rt america and i start learning all of this stuff and mind you i, I had also i also heard about gulf of tonkin to be fair from joe rogan when he sure. talked to, I forget what C, I, I think it was the guy who wrote, oh God, what is it called? Shit, the name is escaping me. He wrote a book about how to overthrow, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had mm -hmm. that guy on. And that's where I first heard of, you know, Gulf of Tonkin and how the United States, you know, CIA, especially the CIA was able to figure out mm -hmm. how to, you know, drain countries of medical supplies or, you know, drain their economy and all that other stuff. So... Yeah, it's subversion tactics. It's basically a way to achieve your goals through non-traditional military means. Right. Yeah, basically to bring a country yeah. to its knees. And, you know, when I first read the book, because after I saw that episode, I, I went and read the book. And I was mm -hmm. like, you know, it makes sense. Like, if these dictators are so evil and, you know, this is so bad, you know, blah, 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 blah. I was like, you know, that makes sense. You want these people, you know, to be okay. But then as I get to RT America and I start learning about what's really happening, like in Colombia and Chile and Ukraine and, you know, Russia and all this, these other countries. And you're kind of like, especially Iraq, you're like, yeah. you're like, these people didn't need any help. We went no. in and screwed shit up. Absolutely. 
you know, and that's where you start learning and you're like, and that was a big place where I learned, you know, I actually worked with more people that were from South America than they were actually from Russia, mm -hmm. believe it or not. But you learn very quickly and, and, and people around the world, they don't hold it against Americans of today, meaning like the younger kids, but people around the world do not like the United States mainly during like the Bush years, the Obama years, especially yeah. because of all the drone strikes. I mean, there's a lot of things and a lot of chaos that we've caused around the world. So when they hear an American say we're the greatest country in the world, they're like, well, yeah, because you screwed it up for everybody else. Yeah. You know, and that was that was a really tough, cold rag in the face. And that's when I even learned, wow. I really haven't been doing journalism. Like I really haven't been looking into this stuff because I've only been seeing one side to all of this. And it really taught me how to look at a lot of other publications. You know, don't just read the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. No, 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 no. You got to read The Intercept. You got to read The Gray Zone. You got to read RT America. You got to read France 24. You got to read DW, you got to, I mean, basically a lot of those are international sources, right? Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is another big one too. And you, you realize too, like after 9-11, Al Jazeera was deemed like a terrorist network, yeah. a, a terrorist TV, they used to call it. Well, just like RT. Exactly. You know, over 20 years later. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's the one thing that a lot of people don't know. Who was the first person to call George W. Bush after 9-11? Who? Putin. Putin was the like first... Immediately after it happened, um, after after it was all over, yeah, he was the first person to call George W. Bush and say, "Whatever you need, we'll come and help." Yeah, because well, at that I, time, I, at that time, he had just asked Bill Clinton, maybe a year before that, if he could be part of NATO. Right. A lot yeah. of people don't know that. Well, you know? more are finding out, thankfully, as a result of what's been going on in Ukraine. Because more questions are being raised. The U.S. is still extremely isolated when it comes to news. It's, yes. It really is the propaganda capital of the world where the people only see what is being fed to them by the government. But And it's not to say that government runs these news media. It's just that it's a very well-controlled you know, messaging that is going out. And everybody knows that humans are lazy by nature. And so... These days, and this is horrible to me, and I think people, you know, around my age, is seeing that the majority, over half the stories in media, start off with a tweet. It's like this is your source of information now. This is where you're getting these stories from. Is you 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 saw a tweet? Nobody's doing actual investigative journalists except for very small groups, like Project Veritas used to be. Whatever their new name is going to be, I'm sure they'll continue doing it. But it's it's certainly not the free media that people think it is. No, it's not. And that's one of the things that, you know, again, learning about a lot of this. One of the things that Americans don't do that we're not taught. And I say this as I'm like, you know, blabbling on and on and on. But I mean, it is about me, right? But people don't listen to each other. People talk through each other and think that they're going to change your mind. Or people just kind of look through you and just think like, okay, I'm just having this conversation, but I'm not really absorbing what the other person's saying. Because Americans are now taught to just be go, 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 go. 
you know, I got to go, I got to get to this. I got to get to that. You know, even though there are people that, you know, that don't, might not live in New York, we have that New York mentality of, I got to get to this thing. I got to go do this for myself. I got to go do that. We are very isolated and we're very narcissistic. And I hate when a lot of people throw that word around, but we truly are. I talk to my friends who have grown up in Germany, Italy, Russia, what was Yugoslavia, Venezuela, Colombia. And every one of them pretty much says the same thing about their news. You know, you want to look at a United States newscast, okay? And as, as somebody that used to create them and anchor them, you start out with your biggest story of the day. You go into your other big national stories or your local stories. You know, if it leads, it leads. Then you have your weather break. Then you have your D block stories, which would be like, you know, oh, the cat fashion show and this, this, this. And then you go to sports and then you end with, and here is, you know, a squirrel water skiing. Have a great night. Where in that at all in local news do you hear anything about international stuff? Unless yeah, it's like no the word. war in Ukraine. An inter in international local news, they start with their national news. Then they have entire blocks of straight international policy news. Yep. And what's going on. And then they end with the hyper local news. And yeah. then they, you know, end the show. And, and well, when this is what built CNN. And again, I'm old enough to remember when Ted Turner first got CNN to get on the cable. And it was, you know, it was a powerhouse because the concept of a 24 hour news network seemed insane because, well, there isn't 24 hours worth of news to talk about because everybody's just used to watching their local news, which you just very, very correctly was using a formula that had been around for a long time and mm -hmm. it's still being utilized. And now they're going to have a network that's 24. Well, they're going to have to just repeat things on and on. But what they did very early on was they started including more coverage of international news. And I think that was the first time a lot of people, a lot of Americans were exposed. You know, over half Americans don't have a passport. Oh, yeah. They've never left the country. Oh, yeah. I believe it. And, and see, a lot of people overseas, the reason why they study international, they have a whole block of international news and policy is because. You can literally drive from Italy to Germany and then over to like maybe like a, if, if you kind of cut corners to Poland in one day, you yeah. know, or, or you can fly around, you know, you, you could you could visit multiple countries in Europe in a day. And guess what? It's like you yeah. all have to get along because you're all pretty much on top of each other over there. And you've all fought each other for a thousand years, which is why Americans don't understand when I say we're narcissistic. Yeah. When you look at the war in Ukraine, okay, and I used to get a lot of crap for this when it first happened. I was like, you know, people were like, yeah, we got to send bombs. We got to send this. We got to send that. I was like, you people don't understand that Ukraine has been under like 17 different rulers from the time of its inception, from the time mm -hmm. of this earth that humans were around. You know, a lot of people don't even know the history of Ukraine. Yeah. I, I did. A major deep dive, and actually Roger Stone, or not Roger Stone, Oliver Stone, has an amazing documentary with Igor Lepontic, who I've interviewed, who's amazing, amazing mind, brilliant mind. 
Ukrainian himself, goes over the entire history of Ukraine and how there has been all these different rulers and how people don't understand that there are ethnic Russians in Ukraine and then there's Ukrainians, but most people all speak Ukrainian and Russian. And then all of a sudden they stopped. They had it where you couldn't speak Russian anymore. But the reason there's no such thing as a Ukrainian there genetically, there are no Ukrainians. It's just Russians. It's, it's different people with identical DNA. There's DNA differences between people in Serbia and Poland, right? Mm -hmm. They're subtle, but there are Mm -hmm. genetic differences. There are no genetic differences whatsoever between Russians and Ukrainians. And that's because the history of Russia is intimately tied to that region, which is called Ukraine for a reason, which is borderlands. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a region of Russia that happened to have been occupied by a lot of different countries over the years, from the Mongols to the Tartars mm-hmm. to, you know, I like, I remember as a kid going to Crimea to oh, wow. uh, see my, my family's house down there. And, uh, you know, the history in Crimea was still recent enough a reminder of the, the invasion of the Turks. Like, there, was, there were a lot of elements of the occupation of that region by multiple different ethnic groups, really, you know, you can call them countries, but they're really different ethnic groups over the years because it's, it's a great location (laughs) and everybody wants to have good locations be part of their empire. But people that think somehow that Ukraine is no different than Poland, meaning it was a country that got taken over by the Soviet Union, they're, they have no concept of this history. That, that part of Russia and it is a part of Russia, has been a part of Russia other than during the occupation for about 700 years. So the, the history of Ukraine is the history of Russia. Uh, you you 100%, can't separate them. You can't. And, and that's why, you know, when they go back to, you know, the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, I mean, you guys, <laughs> I always say, my friends, Ukraine has been a country since 1991. Before that, they were Russians, you know, and that's where you just get a lot of Americans that just don't know the history of it. And I don't blame them because, you know, you think you think some high school kid who can barely pass a, you know, English class, you know, in some poor neighborhood is going to want to sit and learn about the history of the Ukraine, too. You know, like I don't I wouldn't blame them. But. The point being, though, is, is yes, you're absolutely right. And there's been a lot of infighting. A lot of people don't know that, you know, they say, oh, Ukraine, the Ukraine's the Ukrainians sided with the Nazis during World War mm-hmm. Two. Well, some of the. Yeah, but they were considered Russians that there were some Russian yeah. defectors that went with the Nazis, you know, and then that's where yeah, I will say. Ban- Bandera was the, the big yep, Stefan Bandera. unifying force that was pro-Nazi. He was a Ukrainian regional nationalist. And he, he very much advocated utilizing the German invasion to get the Russians and the Poles out of that area because he was, you know, he, he was, I guess the best way to put it is if you think of like Florida 
having a certain personality or Georgia or pick whatever state you want. It could be wait, Maine. Wait, think of Florida having a personality? Okay. Yeah, hardly <laughs> hard. But my, my point being is like there, there are states within the United States in this analogy that have certain attributes, certain characteristics. And let's pick Texas because I live here, right? So people say, yeah. can say Texas, if Texas has certain percentage of people that want Texas independence back. And I, I think that'd be super cool. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm not opposed to it. But there are people that are really gung-ho for the independence of Texas. And if they manage to pull it off because the United States defaults on its debts and China effectively owns large chunks of the United States, they can't hold the government together. I'm writing fiction now, right? I'm not predicting the future. I'm just like free, free-forming ideas of a fiction novel. You could see different regions break off the United States and say, well, screw you. We're going to do our own thing because we actually know how to, you know, run a state. And now we're just going to become our own little country. Well, if that happens, you got to imagine that not everybody on the first day in Texas is going to agree with that decision for independence. Not everybody in Texas is from Texas and has families that have lived there for, you know, dozens of generations. So there's, there has to be a lot of people that become separated from their families and, and their histories, if they happen to find themselves in an area that is now no longer part of the United States. So kind of take that analogy with what happened with the fall of the Soviet Union, where they took what were effectively Russian states. They were regions within Russia, the empire, the Russian empire. They were regions within the Russian empire. When the communists took over, they kept those regions and in a, in a move of frankly brilliance, Lenin wanted to ensure that these different regions didn't turn into, into regional nationalistic uprisings. So the idea of communism was let's convert the whole country to communism instead of breaking the country up and having each little area kind of become their own little communist country because the communists didn't want to lose control. And so they created the, the representative system that became the Duma in Russia, which, which has representation and somewhat local control in each of these regions and thereby keeping the, the whole country of what was the Russian empire as Soviet Union. But, but those moves were politically motivated and so when the breakup happened finally in 91, the, uh, there was a, a move for giving full autonomous control and effectively areas that had been regions for hundreds of years, all of a sudden became independent nations. And uh, that was very welcomed by some people, but also it gave rise to a lot of nationalism and the growth of nationalism in Ukraine with the Bandera movement, the, what are they called? The Right Patrol, Right Guard? I can't remember. Right Guard. Yeah, that'd be a great name for a group. Right Guard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You'll never smell when you sweat yeah, with us. Yeah, but essentially, <laughs> Bandera-influenced, strong, nationalistic, friendly towards Nazi Germany World War II types that started really growing substantially in Ukraine, a lot more so than they did in other regions that were also previously part of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And it's just, that is something that 
is another example that is not taught in our history books here. You know, like we're taught that Germans bad, Russians, Russians bad, UK okay, France weak, you know, Germany evil, Japan evil, US ultimate China ult- evil. I mean, Ch- everybody is basically bad. Yeah, it's just but like US, US is good. Yeah, US other ultimate hero. countries are okay. Yeah, US ultimate hero. Yeah. You know, whereas you find out that the United States kind of came in at the last minute and mm-hmm. they also wouldn't have been able to win had it not been for the Russians. Oh, absolutely. And and I think there's an argument to be made that the Russians would have won without the United States. Now, I Probably. don't think it would have been nearly as quick for sure, but ultimately Germany just did not have the manpower in the end. And the Russia was able to create supply lines and manufacturing to the point where they were making, you know, a tank every few hours coming off the assembly lines in Siberia with the German tanks were much better, no doubt about it. But they took much longer to make because those BMW and Mercedes factories just could not crank them out as fast. Yeah. And you never hear about like how IBM helped, you know, make the list for those going into the gas chambers. Oh, you hear that on my podcast, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but like, yeah, Yeah. it's it's like, that's where I say I love like the untold history of things, of how things really Well, between Walt Disney and Ford and, you know, a lot of the big... And let's just use the modern terminology. Big oligarchs in the United States were very much pro-Germany and pro-Hitler. And it was, I, I don't, this is why I, I love the man in the, oh shit, I'm now, I'm like, man, the Hightower. Oh, yeah, the, the show where it's like the Nazis yeah. one? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So it's, it's, it's a, it was a book and then they made the show about it. But it's a, an alternate sort of very slightly sci-fi-ish history of the world the, went in a different direction to where it was, in fact, the Germans that created the first atomic bomb and that ended World War II with the surrender of the United States. And so the, the, wow. the eastern United States was, became a German-controlled territory, and then west of the Rockies was a Japanese-controlled territory. Oh, wow. So the, the Axis powers effectively won World War II, took over all of the regions in Asia and Europe, and then the United States was carved out in, in the, it wasn't even half, it was like two-thirds, one-third, but basically in half. And the, the movie I really, or the TV series, I thought was very good up until the last season where it kind of deviated from the book quite a bit. It's always when it goes bad. I know. It's like they just, they cannot stand not doing one more season. That's the trouble with all these, just completely skipping topics here, but that's the biggest problem, I think, with most TV shows. When they do good, when they create a very good TV show, their drive for more profit will not let them stop it at a good point. They have to make that last season, which always is the weakest. Uh-huh. And just ruins it. And it's like, yeah, you, could, it's, you couldn't just make merch or something? It's, un, it's unfortunate, but, you know, this, is, this has been par for the course on everything. And I think the biggest example of recently that we've had of this is Game of Thrones, which was heralded as one of the best TV shows ever made up until the last two seasons where it completely blew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but yeah. So anyway, you, 
getting back to, I, and I've kind of talked more than I try to on these interviews. No, no, uh, it's, I, I, I because I love that World War II stuff because I'll even tell you another cruel story that I found mm -hmm. out was my great-grandfather was in what would be considered the Russian Secret Service for Tsar mm -hmm. Nicholas. And Tsar Nicholas, my, my grandfather was born in St. Petersburg. And then I had another. That's, that's where I'm from. Another great grandfather who was born in Munich. So I'm like mm -hmm. kind of Belarusian too, but mm -hmm. again, it's all the same. And he was one of Tsar Nicholas's, you know, top bodyguards. He used to chop wood with them all the time. And then there was the whole spiel where they were getting ready for him to escape. My great grandfather was sitting there waiting for him in St. Petersburg to arrive. Never did, got word. And immediately fled for the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the Russian side of my family was, you know, escaped. started. Yeah, and yeah, escaped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's it's those stories that you hear about where here, you know, as a kid, like you always heard Anastasia because they did the little, you know, the, the DreamWorks production, you know, of Anastasia. Yeah. But uh, you don't you find out, though, especially like with the crown. And maybe they don't tell us as kids because they don't think that we'll understand it. And. Also, I don't think they're going to tell a bunch of kids. Now, you know, kids, his cousin, King George, could have saved him, but then yep. just let him do an execution. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get the wonderful cartoon of Anastasia. Like, they're not going to say that. But again, just all these stories uh, in time, you're just, what? And yeah. then this is my father's grandfather, the one that was in the Secret Service. For mm -hmm. My father was about three years old. And he said, three or four, I think he said. And he was in a little Red Rider wagon. His grandfather was pulling him and he tripped on the sidewalk. This is now in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Tripped on the sidewalk and hit his head. And my father, who is grew up to be a neurosurgeon, now knows it was a, basically a subdural hematoma. Mm -hmm. And my great-grandfather started losing, you know, started becoming paralyzed and losing feelings in certain places. And my grand, my dad said, you know, that I, you know, actually, I think my dad might have been like maybe six or seven, maybe because he's like, I remember certain things, you know, as far as the story and I'll, you'll understand why. And he said that his grandmother started, you know, having to take care of him more and he started losing more and more feeling and becoming slowly paralyzed. And he said he remembered leaving because in Chicago, you know, the immigrant families, you'd have like his his parents lived on the the main floor. The grandparents lived above him and then his aunt and uncle lived below him. You know, that's mm -hmm. how the immigrants did it. Yep. You know, like these three story houses, uh, like these row houses kind of. A and he's like, I remember going out the back and going up the stairs to go see grandpa. And it was my uncle Ed. And he said, you can't go upstairs right now. And he's like, oh, but I want to see grandpa. And he's like, you can't see grandpa right now. You got to go back downstairs. And it's like that Russian mentality. Mm -hmm. That if they feel like they're a burden, they off themselves. Mm -hmm. And my grandpa, my great grandfather committed suicide. Wow. And I believe he hung himself. Wow. And that's one of those stories where you, you hear about those generations, you know, and you're just like, wow, you know, like these people. It's like you, you see China and how they all celebrate their birthday on the same day, you know, or like how everything is for the greater good. Like, mm -hmm. that's how Americans and even immigrants used to be. Mm. Now it's like, well, if it ain't good for me, I ain't doing it. You know, <laughs> like there's there was this sense of 
you know, the family. I'm not going to, you know, do that to all these people. You know, like it was this, this selflessness. You're not saying that if you're a burden, you got to go off yourself. But what I'm saying is, is, you know, you and plus he was also very old. But you just see there was that sense of selflessness that we used to have. I mean, it always reminds me of the, oh God, what's the guy's name in the second guy in Dumb and Dumber? Jeff Daniels. When he's in the, the beginning, everybody always talks about, you know, the beginning scene in Newsroom. Have you seen that show? Yeah, yeah. Where he, he's at the college and they're like, why is America the greatest country in the world? And they keep pressing him. And he's like, all right, fine. America's not the greatest country in the world. We're like <laughs> last in education. We're last in healthcare. We're last in this. We're last in that. And he's like, but we used to be, you know, funny story, true story. When I was at RT America, my mentor, Rick Sanchez, who used to be on CNN, when Newsroom was just coming out, I believe is Taylor Sorkin is no. Aaron Sorkin is the Aaron creator. Sorkin, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. He followed. He, at least this is from Rick. He told me that he followed him around for a week mm. and loved Rick so much that he kind of based the Jeff Daniels character off of Rick Sanchez at CNN when he was there. After watching the Newsroom again, I totally see it. I'm like, he's totally dead mm-hmm. because Rick was that kind of news anchor at RT America that, now mind you, he's a Cuban immigrant, that was the type that would say, like, no, we're not the best. Like, look at this country. Look at that country. Look at how look at how some socialist countries have much better health care than capitalized health care here. Like, look at some of these countries. Look at some of that, those countries. And just by saying that, I get people, oh, so you're a socialist? It's like, mm-hmm. no, but why does our health care system suck? Like, why aren't we fixing that? Yeah. You know, and it's, I, yeah. I think I think that it's literally impossible to make the statement the greatest about any country or even any person. Yeah. I think there are aspects to every country that are better than others, aspects that are worse than others. I think the U.S. is absolutely had up until now, anyway, had the best secret service in the world. We've been managed to, like you mentioned, to instigate, you know, revolutions, if you want to be nice about it or overthrows in 68 different countries. We've done a great job of ensuring that the, that all these countries are in line with the interests of the United States, which leads to the prosperity of the United States. The United States absolutely figured out how to cash in on World War II with a long-term benefit and not just a short-term one. And I think in a lot of ways, the Sort of what people refer to as the deep state in the United States. And you don't have to like the deep state to agree and acknowledge that no other empire has managed to pull this off in a way that the United States has. The, the British Empire was a good one, but their method of operation was very different. It was effectively, we leave you guys alone and we just give you taxes to pay. But for the most part, you know, you, you now have the protection of the British Empire. You know, it was not a, a complete optimization of the other country for the sole benefit of England. There were aspects of that, but that, they were a lot more interested in territory and access to more natural resources than they were in actual deliberate control of the population. And I think the United States kind of took that model and expanded it to say, well, we can do both. We can get the raw materials, but we can also control 
that population to not resist what they clearly see as their, their resources being stolen from them. So the United States has been very effective in that. You can say that's not a good thing. I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that it is a good thing, but it is effective. Yep, absolutely. When you see that, okay, they're also very effective at telling the people in their own country that it, it, it's going to be effective for that country too. You know, like, for example, like, you know, oh yeah, we're going to, you know what? There's this thing called NAFTA, guys. Mm -hmm. And it's the North Atlantic Free Trade. And, yep. you know, this is going to be great because we're going to be helping out people in Mexico and Canada. And it's going to be great. Your businesses are going to boom and yada, yada, yada. Your your towns are going to get bigger. There's going to be so many jobs. And you're going you're gonna to be able to trade everything over the border of Canada and Mexico. It's going to be great. And then it's like two weeks later, Ford, GM, Chrysler, see you later, going to Mexico. And yep. you're like, wait a minute, hang on a second. You know, and th yep. this country is so good at, at telling, you know, its people and and they we just blindly believe but i that's where i think we're at a at a at a turning point in this country is that with the internet with with more and more call them citizen journalists independent journalists whatever you want to call them out there that are that are growing in numbers people don't take you for your word anymore and yeah. and politicians have to learn how to be a little bit more skillful in what they tell you and People have learned how to ask tougher questions and demand the answers. You know, like the one thing that I always talk about with my audience is what irks me to the bone is the amount that these folks in Congress and in the Senate, how much they make and how often they have time off. OK, I did a whole fair and balanced report on this when I was at RT America, where these folks get $170,000 to $175,000 a year. The Speaker of the House gets $225,000 yep. a year. And that's just your base, okay? That's like in, in sales, that's your base. We're not talking about your lobbying money or all your donor money and all that other stuff. That's, that's a whole different, you know, file folder. But these folks get every single federal holiday off, which... They don't just get the federal holiday off. They get the week of that federal holiday off. They get a spring break. They get the entire month of August off. And they get the entire month of the Democratic and the National, I'm sorry, the Democratic and the Republican National Conventions off, which is why you always see them in two different months before the election. Notice one is like at the end of September and the other one's early October. Like it's so they all can get a month off. Because both sides get a month off. Yep. They basically work. The House works 135 days a year. The Senate works 165 days a year. Roughly uh, on average. Mm -hmm. And what irks me is the amount that they do not work and the amount that they get. If I am on Capitol Hill, and you, know, you always see it, these reporters where they'll be, they, they see them walking into the House or the Senate and they're like, Hey, you know, can you answer this, 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 you know, like, you know, like AOC or a bunch of them. And they just keep walking. Don't even stop to answer. And I look at that and I'm like, you know, you really have to give it to them. They think 
they don't have to stop and answer a question. And that's where, you know, I love guys like Alex Stein. And this is why, like, I I first, <laughs> when I first saw him come on the radar from Tucker Carlson, mm-hmm. and I saw him where he was talking about, you know, do it for the Ukraine, put a bullet in Putin's brain, you know, like, where he was mm-hmm. doing that. And then when I saw him going more and more to city councils, there's one where he goes to, I believe it's McKinney, Texas. Yep. And he's like, yeah, I just wanted to know, Mr. Mayor, why is it that you won't answer any of the questions about, you know, the finances? Because I have a thing here where you were a Dallas city council member and you were embezzling money and they just, they try to shut him up. And he goes, no, 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 no. And he goes, no, see, you work for me, bucko. He's like, I'm going to go after all of you. He goes, Karen, you don't know what the hell you're doing. Brian, with your with your weirdo tie. And he just goes after all of them. And I've talked to him about this. Mm-hmm. And like the reason that I would show your videos in my newscasts when I was at RT America was because I wanted people to see, look, you can go up to your city council members, get in their face and say, you work for me. What are you doing? There came this. And I don't think it's that that it's it's a passive thing where people don't want to hold these people accountable. It's just people don't have time. People are working more hours for less money. People, by the time, you know, both parents now, if you want your kids to go to good schools, both parents are going to have to work. You want to have a nice house? Yeah. You, you know, it's 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 basically, you know, designed so that, you know, like when people say, oh, they're there, you know, like, you know, I will say Marjorie Taylor Greene does answer questions. But when I see her being like, America, we are, they, they are bringing socialism in this country. And I'm like, bitch, it's already here. <laughs> it's already here. Again, both parents working. You know, you want to see you want to know why kids like you see all these videos of these kids where they're acting out in school. Like I saw this video yesterday of this kid yelling at his Chinese teacher being like, oh, Mr. Chow, Mr. Chow. And he's like, yeah, get out of my fucking face. And he's yelling this in his teacher's face. You want to know why these kids are like this? Because there's no parent at home. They're working. You know, and then they're working so this little asshole can go to a good school. Mind you, there's no discipline happening because. Yeah, it's not just that they're working. It's also parents suck right now. They they don't like we're at a point where now the people that are parents. Were not taught by their parents how to actually raise children. Because that was a whole generation of Dr. Spock, never touch a kid. You can't spank them. You can't make them feel bad. You got to understand what they're trying to say. And all this bullshit that is just created within the last 50 years. And we're now in a second generation of kids going through it. So it's, it's absolutely no surprise whatsoever to me. And this is why we have things like the, I'm sure you saw the, the commercial comparison between the commercial for the u.s military that starts off with a woman talking about her two moms and how she learned the importance of protesting and now she's going into the military you know with that kind of upbringing in mind and then to the russian ad which is you you know do do you like to kick ass and kill wolf with your bare hands and then eat it raw well, maybe you should come and join the military. It's well, like, and and you know that's the one thing that when a Russian has a gun to your head, they're going to ask you, "How many times did you protest last year?" 
Like, <laughs> yeah, what? Right? You know, <laughs> like, give me a break. It, it is. It really is decline of America. And there are, there's a few of us that are seeing it and recognizing it for what it is, the fall of the American empire. And there's a very much a majority of people that are just, maybe they dislike some of the things that are happening. They dislike some of the, uh, the, the balkanization that's happening. But for the most part, they don't really see this as a major shift. It's just like, oh, it'll get back to normal. I, I don't think it will because I, I've studied enough American history as well as histories of other countries to see where we are today in America and where we are is heading in a direction uh, where the glory days of America are behind us. And what we have to look forward to is unpredictable at best and dystopian at worst. You know, I, I, uh, my God, God rest his soul. My little old Irish grandpa, Grandpa Tom, you know, he was this, this guy, Irish, said the rosary every day, went to church every Sunday, you know, was a virgin when he got married. And I think he was 21 when he got married, worked at the docks at Procter and Gamble his entire life. I had four kids, my mom being one of them. I had a car, had a great house. My grandma Joan, who was this fiery cracker of an Italian woman, if you ever want to know where I get it, it started with her, then my mother, then me. But, you know, here, I, I always used to kind of, I, I sometimes like look at what America is now. And I think, what would Grandpa Tom say? Because he died in 2016. Mm -hmm. right after trump won and he was he was all for trump he was he was a reagan democrat and that's where like whenever i talk to roger stone i'm always like it was your thinking because he roger stone identified the reagan democrat if you've ever watched mm -hmm. get me roger stone it's amazing but i always say you're the one that turned my family republican i tend to lie all over the board because i i don't <laughs> no party is for me but yeah they all want to kick you out Exactly. <laughs> but like I was even thinking the other day, it's so funny you say that, the, you know, the whole this great American country. And I was watching this thing about this teacher being like, you know, I let my kids pick their gender. And, you know, that those these, you know, libs of TikTok mm -hmm. where they show those. And I was like, I wonder what Grandpa Tom would say with all of this. And he was a very funny guy, you know, that old Irish humor and, you know, from the greatest generation. And I even remember, you know, and then this guy like never swore, never drank, you know, literally just pure hold person. Hold on, hold on. Now I know you're lying. The Irishman who never drank. You know, what's funny is his father actually. So the Irish, when they make their confirmation, they have to make a vow. And his father's vow was to never have a drink. And he never did. My grandpa's, I don't know what his was. I think that kind of ended around when he was a kid, but he didn't drink a lot. He'd have like a beer or two, but he wasn't a big drinker because you know why? He saw a lot of the Irish drink a lot. And he just wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. Plus, he was always working, you know. But yeah, like I, I was like, oh, my God, what would I what, what would grandpa say if, you know, I came home and I told him that I feel like I'm in the body of a man, you know, or like if my brother told him, hey, grandpa, I think I'm going to be a girl now, mm -hmm. you know, and, and he would make the funniest faces and I just he'd be like, what, you know, what, what do you mean? You know, like just this, this idea and how. You know, and I see, I don't have kids right now, but, you know, I was just talking to my girlfriend the other night about this because she's got three kids in high school. 
out in New York. And she's like, Farron, she's like, our, our, we're done. She's like, this country's done. Because her and I talk about the demise of, of America, too. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and she's like, and one way they're doing it is through porn. And I'm like, you're going to have to explain this. And she's like, Farron, do you know the average age that a kid sees porn for the first time now is? And I was like, no. And she's like, nine years old. Wow. And there's a great doc. Here's another documentary because she was like, you got to watch this documentary. Immediately did. It's called Generation Porn. I believe it's on HBO. And Twitter is like the number one place for porn. Twitter has zero checks when it says, are you 18 and older when you sign Mm -hmm. up for an account? You know, so they show where a 13 year old boy can sign up and you can immediately go to like Pornhub on Twitter or any any one of those kind of porn websites and just start watching. And she's mm-hmm. like, Farron, she goes, there are girls now that, you know, and I don't know how graphic or real you want to get. She's like, but she's like, Farron, when you learned about sex, you know, she's like, what did you learn about it first? And I was like, eighth grade. It was always the big talk. She goes, yeah, these kids already know about it well before they get there. She goes, and by high school, they're talking about how they want to do anal. And I'm just like, and she's like, my kids told me, told me what ATM is and and how, oh, mom, that's not the money shot. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And that is one of the things that you do see, like, where the fall of empires, where, like, the social standards and stuff like that start getting thrown out the window, this whole gender talk. And, you know, every it's been going around on the Internet, you know, because, you know, Putin is so bad. Yet this latest speech he did, he's like, look at what they're doing over in the West. Boys are girls. Girls are boys. You know, no family values. No, no, you know, I don't think he said Christian, but I think he said no religion, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's 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 so true. So true. Yeah, no, there's a lot of, I think, assumptions being made by Americans about why people that are are referred to as being bad or evil in America are that way. Like a lot of people talk about, you know, how bad China is, all these bad things in China. And there again, and I've had this conversation with a number of, of people on, on my podcast and others, is that I, I challenge anybody that has a negative view of China to prove to me that they actually know anything about Chinese history. Because they don't. No American has bothered taking the time to research the 8,000 years of history in China that allows you to understand the character of China, which allows you to understand how China got to be where they are right now. People's take on China is based on a five minutes of news over the years. That's all it is. Because people don't care. They're like, oh yeah, Chinese food. You know, what we call Chinese food in America is actually American food cooked by Chinese people originally, but created for an American audience. We don't have real Chinese food here. And I know maybe I'm nitpicking on one certain aspect of it, but I'm just using it to illustrate a point, which is that the American perspective is extremely internal. It is based around American ideas and about other things outside of America without any actual study or research of the things that are outside of America. And I, I think that's very sad. Like I was, I've never understood why more people don't want to be multilingual in this country. Why so many people just think it's fine just speaking English and nothing else. 
Yeah. And I, I love the people like when you go overseas where they, they think like they, they, they will start speaking English at some point and they'll look at them like probably like I don't speak English. And then they like they're just they say it louder and slower. Like like, you know, right. do you understand? And you're like, yeah, honey, they, they don't speak English. Like just just mm-hmm. going as slower and louder makes them feel like you're an idiot or actually but makes them think you're an idiot. The reality is most people in the rest of the world do speak English. And not even just English, in, multiple right, languages. Multiple, exactly, exactly. But even in African countries and stuff where you you would not expect it as much, the odds of finding uh, somebody who speaks English are are much, much higher. Because, you know, most countries' education systems know that if you want to live in a global world, you're going to have to interface with people in a common language. For better or worse, the United States has been the dominant country of the world for the last 40, 50 years. And they speak English, and they don't speak anything else. And therefore, if you're going to pick another language anywhere else in the world to learn, English makes the most reasonable sense to learn first, and then you learn the other languages. Yeah, it so, used to be Spanish. I started when I was in kindergarten. Yep. And was fluent by the time I was in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Now, like growing up, like my, my then it, like my brother's five years younger than me. Mm-hmm. He minored in Mandarin. Yeah. And I think that's great. And I, this is one thing I've always thought was very smart of Ivanka is to teach or not, well, she's not the one teaching him, but to ensure that their kids learn Chinese from the get go. That it's a, that's going to be an important language to be fluent in for a lot of reasons. And she was getting a lot of shit for that from people. It's like, why the hell is she having their kids learning, you know, that communist Chinese language? Uh-huh. It's just, it's, it seems so crazy because even if you look at China as an enemy, and there are plenty of reasons to do that, don't get me wrong, but even if you do that, is it not better to understand your enemy? That is a point that I have tried to make to people so many times and in the sense of where I say, like, do you understand, like, the Russian mentality? Do you understand how they feel pressured because NATO keeps growing? Do you Mm -hmm. understand how, you know, other countries like China feels? Do you understand why India now is starting to side with Russia and China? Do you Mm -hmm. understand why Saudi Arabia, Arabia... really doesn't care about us not having oil anymore because they're looking at China being like gold mine. Like, yep. do, do you guys not understand that? And they're like, no, they're just all bad. If they're, if they're not with us, they're against us. And it's like, and don't you want to know why? Like, but no, it's because I think it's just people don't have time or it's too much or they just don't want to hear the other side. I think that's like I said, like it's, it's a combo of a lot, but I think a lot of it though, too, is that, People don't want to hear that they're not liked. We're not liked around the world by a lot of people, you know? And the response is usually, well, they're just jealous. (laughs) Right. Okay. That's like, that's like, it's like, I'm not a bitch. Everybody's just jealous of me. Yeah. Okay. Everybody, everybody just hates me because I'm so pretty. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, much like the using your natural gifts that were given to you by genetics and not anything that you actually accomplished. This is the problem with relying too much on beauty, which is America has been relying too much. I think on having a really been the only major economy 
undamaged in World War II. And that provided a, a huge boost forward for America. And now, if we get into a little more of a conspiratorial thought, some people would say, maybe I, I'm not necessarily one of these people, but some people would say that the destruction of Nord Stream and really the push for Europe getting on board with all the sanctions that ultimately do more harm to Europe than they do to Russia is actually a strategically calculated move by the United States to prevent the growth of Germany and to some extent the EU, but mostly Germany, by crippling it with this whole Ukraine narrative. Because Germany was getting too big for its britches. What, what yeah. do you think about that? I mean, I think that any time the United States sees a country starting to do well, it's a problem. You know, like, for example, you look at Africa, right? You had Muammar Gaddafi. How was it that he came in like a freaking baller gangster? Mm -hmm. Started getting everything back in, in shape. All of a sudden, <clears throat> other countries, Egypt, everybody else, they're all doing really, really well. And then all of a sudden, he's like, you know, why don't we all get together and create one form of currency for Africa called the gold dinar? Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, great idea, great idea. We can, we can compete with the dollar and we can compete with the yuan and all this. All of a sudden, dudes dragged through the streets, sodomized with a sword. See you later. No, good, no, no gold dinar anymore. What was, what was it that Hillary Clinton said? We, we came, came, we, we saw, saw, he died. died. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's any, any country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is so satanic. Heard her laugh, man. But, yep. you know, I just, I look at it and it's just like, you know, I, I understand. I understand. Keeping other countries. Or let me, let me backtrack. I understand the entire peace through strength. Mm-hmm. Mentality that, you know, Reagan, you know, boldly coined. However, you know, I was, I was, I, I was immediately thinking when you said, you know, we haven't had, you know, a, a total economic collapse since 1942. Yeah. Right. If you said that to any other American, you know, cause I, I know that that's not true. Right. I, I know my history, not all of mm -hmm. it, but I know a good amount of it. If you said that to any American, they'd say, oh, yeah, we have. We had a recession under Clinton. We had a recession under Obama. We had a recession here. And it's like, yeah, but did your country's economic funds completely collapse like Colombia or Nigeria? Or mm -hmm. like, did you like, did we lose our banks? Did we just all of a sudden have zero dollars? Yeah. Like, no, we didn't have a collapse. And, and or a recession Chile or Nicaragua yeah, like, or any any number of Latin American countries where the United States had altered the government for the better. The United States. Right. And it's like you, you woke up with money in your bank account still and just things were more expensive. That's not an economic collapse. You know, and that's, again, another ignorant American thing we do. It's our, our worst days, we think, are are like. We, we don't understand that those are actually days that countries would like kill for, you know, 
eggs are six dollars. Tell that to, you know, Zimbabwe or, you know, Bambi or something like tell that to a country right now. You know, Ethiopia right now who's literally undergoing a civil war and we are helping fund the rebels. Yeah. Or Sudan. Right. And the people don't hear about how we're sending troops to Africa. And people are like, yeah, you know, my, my one friend, she's like, yeah, my son's he's they're going to Africa. And I'm like, where in Africa? She's like, Ethiopia. And I'm like, oh, OK, <laughs> here we go. You know, people don't hear about that because it doesn't it doesn't register because, you know, you have to talk to people. You know, it truly is that idea of if you're if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. I've I've always thought that. And and you, I, I really have always tried to live by that. I mean, if I, I love knowing everything or trying to know everything, but I don't want to be the one in the room that, that, that knows it all, you know? And trust me, I remember my siblings growing up, I used to get, oh, Farron's a know-it-all, Farron's a know-it-all. And I'm like, no, I just, I try to learn as much as I can because the more you know, the more you're able to see shit. And that's how it's gone through with journalism, you know, is the more that I have done deep dives, watch documentaries. And mind you, people will say, oh, well, if you watch a documentary, that's only one side. Of course, which is why then I go to find and research to see what the other side is. Yeah. You know, everybody yeah, has the, a side. The solution to avoiding one side isn't to watch nothing or yeah. read nothing. That's not the solution. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, my, my second favorite band of all time, number one is Queen. The Beatles actually are, are number three, but my second favorite band is Extreme. Very underrated band. Mm-hmm. I'm a big music person. I play for What do they do? I can't even think of what they've done. More than words. Mm. More than words. You know that song. Sing mm. it, I love you. More than I probably heard it. I just can't picture them. They're a very, very underrated band. Actually, mm-hmm. I would probably say they're my third favorite. Beatles are probably up there because I know more Beatles songs mm-hmm. than I do extreme. But I know a lot of extreme songs. But either way, they have an album that's actually could be like put into like a it's like from start to the album goes from start to finish where it could be like a rock opera. And it's all about, you know. Government, it's about there's a song called Peacemaker Die where it has parts of MLK's I Have a Dream speech in there, Warheads. It's all about kind of like the military industrial complex, you know, the race riots, you know, like, again, the peacemakers always are the ones that killed, as Carlin said, you know, why is it that they're always the one that gets killed? (laughs) John Lennon and Martin Luther King, Gandhi. And it's, it's such, it's like the perfect title to an album. It's called Three Sides to Every Story. Mm. And the album is broken up into three parts and it's called Your Side. And that you have the song like, actually, I can look up the discography, but I know on the Your Side, it's Warheads, where it starts, the whole thing starts with, you know, recruit when I give you the word. And then you hear a little kid like, yes, daddy, yes, daddy, yes, daddy. And then it goes into the, it starts the whole rock, you know, the really good rock group. Then it's My Side, which is, you know, where it's, I forget what it's called. I think there's one that's tragic comic. There's a bunch of songs where it's you know about an enemy and then the third part is the truth and that's Mm. where you have the song peacemaker die and all that other stuff and so it's there's three sides to every story your side my side and the truth and that's what i tell people you know because people are like well where else should i look at or what else should i should i listen to or talk Mm -hmm. or you know investigate and i'm like 
just look at the other side, you know, look at your side, look at the other side. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And you'll figure it out. You know, because everybody's truth is a little bit different, but you'll figure it out, mm -hmm. you know? Well, and it's a, it's a true, but you, most people, including news, uh, have a financial incentive. And so getting your objectives to line up with your financial objectives sometimes is not an easy thing to do. And I think this is where we see some what appear to be disconnects between people's actions and words. But if you start looking at where the, it's the old saying, right? Follow the money. Because that's where you see that it's not really a disconnect. There's an alignment between their financial interests and what they're doing, even if that, that isn't agree with what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's the other thing about it is where, when you talk about financial incentive, I like to think that I am one of the last classes in journalism that really went by the Walter Cronkite method of, of really being fair. You know, a lot of people don't know this. Walter Cronkite was a closet socialist, which is why he hated Democrats and Republicans. Mm hmm. He voted for the Socialist Party pretty much every election. And Walter Cronkite said before, right before, you know, TV started to change, and this is what did change it, and he warned us about it. He said, the minute that you start having ads come into the news, you've lost the news. You've mm -hmm. lost the truth. And it's the tr it is the truth. You know, the minute that ads came in, everything changed. Everything. Yeah. I, I remember I was- You have segments brought to you by Pfizer. Yeah, exactly. Well, I remember I was a morning news anchor in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And there was a GM recall where it was something with the pedals where it was like the one pedal, it's it's stuck to the floor and they had to recall because it was, a, you know, basically the accelerator, it would stick. Yeah, that's not good. No, especially for this one victim that I talked to who ended up having to slam herself into a tree and she lost her leg. Wow. And for those that, you know, are not an amputee like myself, I learned that, you know, you don't just like strap on a fake leg and just start walking. You actually have to learn, relearn how to walk. And so I, I go through her story. I, I go, you know, I learn everything and I go to my news director and I'm like, I have, you know, I, I say this, you know, I'm a little jaded from the news, but I say this, you know, with all respect, you know, I'm like, I have the best story for this recall. I'm like, she's a victim. You know, she had, you know, gone through this traumatic experience, having to relive her life, learning how to relive it and all this other stuff and uh, or learning how to live a new life. I'm sorry. And my news director is like, I love it. But it's never going to get past sales. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, Karen. We live in Michigan. She's like, our biggest donor is GM. And I was like, wow. And that's when I realized that the news really has changed. Now, granted, I will say this. There is still such a need for local news. Because, and it's, and it's weird to say that after saying that, but that's, that's where... 
you know, local news is in between a rock and a hard place because the only funding they're getting is from corporations. Mm-hmm. But it's still such a necessity to keep your city managers in check, to keep your county officials, to keep, you know, police and and anybody that's working in public service. They're needed to keep these people in check. You know, we have lost so many local newspapers in the past 10 years alone to where people have no one to keep checks and balances on their local leaders. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was, for example, I was home with my mom over, I think, last Christmas. And they were talking about, you know, something about... And your parents are still in Chicago? Yep. They were talking about something with the new budget and people weren't happy about it and all this other stuff. And I was like, well, let me let me just take a look at the budget. You know, like, let me just see what it says. And, and my mom's like, I don't know where it's at. You know, you could probably find it online. So I'm like, all right. So I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. And then here I'm looking, I find it. Your, your mom sounds like Marge Simpson. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I finally find it. And I look and I'm like, hey, ma. I'm like. How much do you think the chief of police makes here? She's like, I don't know, like 150. I'm like, try 394. Okay, that's insane. And she's like, what? And I'm like, it's right here. She's like, let me see that. And then you can actually click because, and folks, this is all public record, mind you. And I'm like, let's look at his breakdown. You see, he gets money for his car, gets money for his three different cell phones gets money to go to the shooting range i mean this well, that's guy legit. i'm all in favor of that that's fine but i mean i guess you know a little Oprah, illinois i mean they did have a shooting <laughs> at the mall but i mean do you need to go like you know every day i don't think so either way this looks like he was this has looked like it was a budget to go every i'll just mm-hmm. say that you know what was the other thing it was to install something with his house i mean to the stuff that this guy was getting. Yeah. I was like, Mom, you need to go to the next city council meeting and say, why is this your salary? When And I was like, let me look at, the, I was like, let's look at the chief of police salary in the next town over. And I look it up and it's like 178. Mm-hmm. Chief of police. And I'm like, Mom, you need to, and she's like, oh, stop. I don't want to get involved in this, shit, you know? Because there is this fear that if I go and I start causing problems, then shit's going to happen to me, right? Yeah. And that's, Every city needs an Alex Stein. And that's when I started watching Alex Stein. Mm-hmm. And I was like, see, mom, look. And it was literally that week that I was there that I saw him on Tucker. I was like, see, mom, this is why you need to go. Look what he's doing. And she's like, I don't have time for that shit. You know, but I think it's a lot of people, too, are just scared. They're scared for blowback. Oh, sure. And you that know? blowback does happen. We've seen plenty of that, like in California with the city council meetings, the, the school board meetings where the cops are called in to clear them out because the, the board doesn't like hearing what the citizens have to say. And it, it is crazy. And then as far as salaries, I remember a few years back when the, the whole defund the police thing was going stronger during COVID. I remember looking up the police salaries in a number of different locations, including Orange County, where like the average beat cop was getting 180,000 a year. Wow. I mean, uh, 
there's a certain point where the salary of the, the enforcement force can't be more than three times higher than the average salary of the people that they're quote unquote protecting. Because as those salaries keep going up, the types of people you're going to draw are going to see a distinction even more so. I mean, cops already see us and them. If it's not blue, then fuck you. That's, that's a very common cop attitude. But beyond that, when you've got cops that basically are buying brand new Teslas and, you know, $100,000 F-150s that are supposed to be patrolling neighborhoods where the, the average population is making 60,000 a year at most, they're not going to get out of their cars. They're not going to help anybody. They're not going to do jack shit other than collect money for the department by writing tickets. It's not a, it's not a police force. That's a, an arm of the, the revenue service at that point. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where, you know, while, while I get, you know, people should be able to have good salaries and whatnot. Many of these salaries are very, very inflated, very inflated. And, and yeah, but, but that is one thing that I, I do tell people, you know, if you want to see a difference in your community immediately, or I'm sorry, if, if you want to see where your vote matters the most, immediately it is with local government. Yep. Because I even said, those are the people that are going to decide masks or no masks, six feet rule or no six feet rule, lockdown or no lockdown. And I, and I say this because we saw this during the pandemic. I mean, we saw it happen immediately. You know, jab or no jab. The, these were yeah. the people that decided it for you locally. You know, the government could have said, you know, oh, there's the mask mandates. But what they were saying was, as states, we want you to do the mask mandate. Yeah. And then it came down to the states because when Texas was like, now nah, we're done. or I'm sorry. When Florida was like, now nah, we're done. The government didn't come in and stop him. So that just yeah. goes to tell you if that was just a suggestion. They didn't say a mask mandate. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. they have to use that word so that people think, see, I have to. But this is where the press also is absolutely a tool of the government because 100%. I love those compilations that people make and like no, no agenda podcast plays them all the time where somebody will take a dozen or 50 different news channels, local news, and then make a compilation of them saying the exact same sentence exactly the same way. And, it, and then it becomes obvious that this is not a coincidence. This is targeted messaging that is being put out there and delivered on a local level, but originating from a national level. Well, now I will say this because I know firsthand. Because I was there when Sinclair Broadcasting did that whole thing about we all fake news and da da da, and they all had to read that statement mm-hmm. that was handed down by the CEO, mm-hmm. who was a Trump supporter at the time. Who made them all read that? My friends, my friends, my friends that are news anchors had to say that. Mm-hmm. Which I was so grateful at that time. I was in El Paso that I did not work for a Sinclair station. However, I will say there are times, yes, where you'll see the news anchors read the exact same story. And I'll tell you why. A, lazy journalism. Yep. And B, either lazy or very young producers. There is a problem in the news today where, you know, it's why people don't stay in the news. 
the pay is absolute crap. Even for anchors now, it's not even worth it. You know, working holidays, nights, weekends, around the clock, getting, you know, $65,000 a year and they don't pay for hair and makeup anymore. They don't help pay for your wardrobe, but yet you got to come in looking like, you know, you just walked off like the LA strip, you know, like it's one of these things like, or the Hollywood strip or whatever the hell it is called. I can't remember, but like, you, you just, you're like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Like, this is more stressful to me. What's even worse is you have producers that they hire. The producers pay was the first ones and they're the ones that sit and they help write the newscast. Mm-hmm. They got their pace down so low that now they basically just hire college kids or they hire just out of college kids. Well, they're not going to need that. They're going to have the AI doing it all. Well, eventually, however, there will, I mean, you still need a person though to, to put it all in there and do the timing and everything. However, because remember, local news is different in each, you know, each market. So you're going to mm-hmm. have to have somebody there at least covering like the local part of it. But, you know, like Rick, the last time I talked to Rick Sanchez not too long ago, he was like, yeah, he's like, I was with an old producer buddy of mine in Miami. That's where he's at. And he's like, and we're at lunch. And he's like, and he asked the waitress, hey, do you like, because she was talking about the news. And he's like, hey, do you ever mm-hmm. want to work in news? And she's like, well, is what? And he's like, I could make you a producer. And he's like, are you kidding me? You know, like (laughs) they're asking waitresses at this point if they want to be a producer. You know, and I went to school for this shit. It's it's the same thing as banks where your lowliest employee has the title vice president. Yeah, I guess so. I never worked at a bank, so I thought it was a cool thing. It's like if you ever hear somebody that was a VP at a bank, keep in mind that that's not a VP at a normal company because at the bank, literally everybody... That is just one level above a cashier is a VP. Did not know that. That's historically the way it's, it's always been set up. And I I think there was some legal rationale behind it at some point. I don't know if it's even necessarily a thing, but yeah, literally like if you're a cashier, you work there for a year, you get promoted to being like the head of, of the cashiers, you know, for that, that branch, all of a sudden your title is VP. Wow. So titles don't mean a whole lot. It's what people actually did. And this is where I'm a huge fan of Musk's approach where he says, education doesn't matter. Titles don't matter. What matters to me are your accomplishments. Well, and that is one thing I will say that Fox News does is Fox News even says in their hiring thing, like, we don't care if you went to college anymore. Like, if you have a passion for the news and you have a drive, we'll take you. And I look at that and I'm like, good for that, you know, because any kid today looking at the amount of debt that they'll accure after going to four years of college when now everybody has a degree. It's basically just four years to party. Now, granted, there are some people that go do work hard. I, mm-hmm. I see them too, you know, but I, I, for example, like one of my ex-boyfriends was a surgeon and he walked out of medical school with $300,000 in debt. Mm-hmm. He was a surgeon. Yep. And Surgeons do not live the life that people think that they do anymore. Surgeons aren't walking around flesh and Benjamins well, that anymore. Depends if you're a plastic surgeon. Well, even there, <laughs> they, they're having some different difficulties now, too, because people have seen how everything is, you know, they, they you know, they take everything. They'll take it cash. Yeah. And now insurance companies are looking at that and they're saying, no, 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 no. We want a piece of that pie. Mm-hmm. So now they're having to pay larger insurance fees in order to run. 
Yeah. You know, every, every, every insurance companies don't let anything get by. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing is if I, a buddy of mine said this years ago and we always kind of chuckled about it, but it's so true is that if your goal is to make money, you need to be in the money business because mm-hmm. nothing makes money like the money business. You got to be a bank, got to be, you know, somebody that is actively engaged in making money. Everything else, you just get paid a salary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know I've been going for a while here, so I, I think we should probably wrap it up. But before we do, I want to ask you a couple of questions. One is, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to bring up? And then two is, where can people find you? That I didn't cover that I want to bring up. You know, and it's so funny. I, I will say this. It's so funny you asked me this question because, you know, I've mentored a lot of young journalists, even one just the other day who interviewed a number of people that are in East Palestine right now, East Palestine, Ohio, with that whole mm-hmm. chemical train crash. And he was like, you know, what are things that, you know, what do you think I should ask? You know, And I was like, well, the biggest thing is, is you just listen. That's the one thing with interviews is, is a lot of people don't listen. So I will say it is a little bit weird being on this side of it versus how, <laughs> you know, but I was like, he's like, you know, any, any last advice. And I was, you know, I was telling him about, you know, different, the interview process and just kind of, you know, you ask the two punch questions as we call in journalism, where it's, you know, you ask kind of a fact and then follow it up with an emotion so that if they can have their answers a little bit longer. But I was like, you know, then always, always end with, is there anything else you think we should know or anything else you'd like to add? And I told him, I was like, because those were the times that I got the best sound bites, the best, you know, I, I'm doing this interview with somebody. And then all of a sudden I ask, anything else you, you want us to know or you want to add? And then all of a sudden they'd start crying or they'd start, you know, I would just get this ringer of a sound bite. And I was like, and when I learned that technique, I was like, I'm doing that every single interview. So it's, I just find it funny now that you asked that because it's like, <laughs> you know, I have nothing else to, I have, I have nothing, no zinger for you though. But no, I, I appreciate the, uh, having you have me come on. I, I could do this all day, but like I said, you know, whenever you need a guest for sure, but I, I love mm-hmm. talking history, the news. I, I truly think if there's one thing that I could add is it's stay informed folks, you know, the news, and it doesn't have to even be with the news, just Ha- develop just just develop an idea like this passion for just always wanting to learn my dad is extremely successful and i one time asked my dad you know dad what do you think what what makes you so successful and he said the simplest terms i never stop learning and i think that if more and more people have that idea again i don't know everything i know that you know, I know what I don't know. Or what is the, how does it go? I know. Is that the same? Yeah, I, I know what it, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's the distinguishing characteristic generally of intelligent people is that they're, you know, people generally, everybody knows what they know. And right. then some people, they know, or they don't know what they know as well. And then some people, actually a lot of people don't know what they don't know. But the most intelligent people actually know what they don't know, which right. is a way it's a, it's a, and I probably butchered it, but 
it's a way of saying, I understand my limitations and my incompleteness of knowledge. I'm not, and therefore I'm always looking to improve my knowledge. Mm-hmm. People that are not particularly intelligent say things like the science is in. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and any, any type of this has already been decided kind of conversation is generally a, a sign of a lack of intellect. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's, that's what I've seen in my journey is, is, and even hearing from my own father is, you know, never stop learning. And it, it was the, the, the slogan at RT America, but it's so true. Question more. Don't take things at face value. You know, like if, if you think that, you know, for example, you know, you know what this law means or, you know, like, for example, like what's fair use when it comes to copyright law mm-hmm. and you have a very staunch opinion on it. Go and watch a couple of different videos, have an open mind, look at it and say, is this really what I think it is? And, you know. Question everything. Don't just say, yep, I know it. And that's it. Question everything. And don't be afraid to question yeah. yourself, because sometimes you might be proven wrong and that's okay when you're proven wrong. What I've learned, cause it's happened to me a lot. You'll never forget it. Yeah. And I, I really encourage people to play devil's advocate with others who share their opinions mm-hmm. because when you surround yourself with a group of people where everybody agrees with everybody else in the group, you're isolating your ability to learn more. Like you're, you're preventing yourself from growing further. And understanding more because if everybody's in agreement, there's nothing more to be said. Yeah. I, I remember. So oh, even if you don't believe it, just play devil's advocate sometimes and you'll be amazed at what kind of insights you gain. I remember in a, my college rhetorical criticism class where we had to do a speech and we had to pick a topic, you know, and it was a controversial topic. Mine was should sports teams be allowed to have Native American mascots? Mm-hmm. And I was all for it. I was like, yeah, it's honoring them. It's this, it's that, you know, all that. We all give our speeches. And then he goes, okay, now for next week, I want a speech arguing for the other side. Yep. And I was just like, you know, <laughs> and I'm not going to lie. That was a moment in my life where I was like, wow, I have been so like narrow minded because, you know, now, now I, I still do sometimes think that it's okay as long as it's taken seriously, you know, like with these mascots and if the, and if the tribe is okay with it, like go for it, you know, not to like veer off topic really quick, but like, you know, but learning about, you know, the suffrage that a lot of these Indians went through when the Americans first, or when the Europeans first got here and all that other stuff, there are some people, you know, that if, if I was Native American, I might get pissed at some stuff too. And it just makes you put yourself in the other person's shoes. And it sounds so simple, but it's actually not until you have to argue for it, you know? And I will say that's why I think lawyers can bullshit the right way out of anything because they can mm-hmm. put themselves in, in anybody's shoes and figure out how to win it for them, you know? They're, 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 they're the best of well, the best at doing anyway. it. Yeah. Yeah, true, yeah, good lawyers. But yeah, so yeah, question more and then I never stop learning. And then you can find me anywhere at Fair and Balanced, Farron, F-A-R-A-N, Balanced.com or on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. So 
I'm around and I'm I'll always be I'll never stop covering the news. That's one thing. I will never stop. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Well, I appreciate you being on, Farron, and giving your honest opinions and takes and everything and, and fun hearing about your history and kind of the path you took to get to where you currently are. Thanks for having me. I'll come back anytime. And as always, thanks for joining me. Please do keep in mind that nothing in this podcast represents financial, legal, or medical advice. 